Hey, Virgil here. Just want to remind you to subscribe to a fellow biblical and reformed podcast. It's the pregame proverb. It's a daily devotional to help you get your day rolling each morning. Right now, your host, John Rayner, he's going to go through Ecclesiastes. He's doing so verse by verse. The pregame proverb is a syndicated radio show on stations in Hawaii, American Samoa, and in the Delta. And you can have it right now delivered to your smartphone. No ads, no gimmicks, just God's word. For the pregame proverb on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcast from, the pregame proverb with John Rayner, a biblical way to start your day. another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. What's going on, Pastor Oma? (laughs) 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 Oh, man. (laughs) The dip was smooth, bro. That was a good, that was good, man. Yeah, man, that, I owe that one to the fact that it's so early here on the West Coast. I got up, oh. had breakfast, and everything. So that yeah. was my breakfast welcome right there, bro. Yeah, yeah, you, <laughs> you, fi- yeah, you feeling real good right now, man? Because it's it's early where you. I mean, it's still early here as well. You know, here here in the ATL, man. I'm holding it down, man, in your city, man. I'm trying to make sure you know we keep things moving. I know. I miss my city, man. So happy you're there. So so excited, man, to see yeah. what God's been doing with you and your family there. In Metro Atlanta, man, you're part of G3 Ministries there with Josh Spice and Scott and y'all, man. It's just really excited. And uh, just love you, bro. Good to be back with you on the ones and twos, man. Yeah, man. It's been a minute since we've been back. We're grateful again for just a chance, man, as we were kind of opening up just, just prayerfully, man. Just amazed by what God has done through the ministry of Just Thinking, uh, through the podcast, how he's used it. Uh, man, I'm grateful for our listeners, man, who stick with us. Uh, you know, we get our schedules get to the to get to the point where we're traveling so much. It's difficult to to land the plane. But when, when we do, we definitely pack a power punch for them. And that's definitely the case uh, with this particular episode. Hey, I, hey, I hey, hey got, v, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I think I think you are about to go where I'm about to go. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right there. But I interrupted, yeah. man. My my bad. I just got excited, man, because you mentioned our listeners, man, who, who we love dearly, yeah. man. We love all of our listeners dearly. I want to begin here with a little bit of a dedication, man, to two of our listeners, two of our, two of our most yep. dedicated listeners of the Just Thinking podcast. One is Miss Jennifer Buck, who is uh, that name may be familiar to many of our listeners. She's the yeah. wife of Pastor Tom Buck. 
Tom Pastors First Baptist Church in Lindale, Texas. Uh, so we mm-hmm. want to shout out Jennifer Buck and also uh, Julie. Julie, her, 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 she's, she's a follower of us on Twitter, and she's got mm-hmm. one of the coolest Twitter handles I've ever seen. Her Twitter, hand, Twitter handle is Julie Married to Thomas, but not a Thomist. <laughs> <laughs> Julie yeah, yeah. married to Thomas, but not a Thomas. Now, the reason I, the, the reason we're not the reason we're shouting out Jennifer Buck and Julie married to Thomas, but not a Thomas, is because for some reason, man, they just kind of interjected themselves into the preparation that you and I did for for this episode mm-hmm. of the Just Thinking mm-hmm. Podcast, and they they've been saying all week, you know, somehow they've the operative word has been somehow they've been you know tweeting me back and forth, you know, somehow we did help you guys out. We don't know how, but somehow right. we did. So I just thought that was hilarious, man. So now we're dedicating this episode to them, unbeknownst to them. So they're not going to yeah. even know that we did this right. until they press play on this episode and then hear <laughs> this at the top that's awesome. of the episode. Bro, that's awesome. So I said, hey, let's just play along with it. Let's go along with it. So shout out to Jennifer Buck. Shout out mm-hmm. to Julie, married to Thomas, but not a Thomist. Thank you guys for uh, being in our corner with Just Thinking Ministries, mm-hmm. not just the podcast, mm-hmm. praying for us and just being one of our, two of our most loyal listeners. We appreciate both of y'all yeah. so much. So I, I just thought I'd get absolutely. that in right here at the top, bro. No, absolutely. No, that's great, man. Appreciate you doing that. Definitely wanted to want to circle back with, with Miss Jennifer Buck, Mrs. Jennifer Buck, and grateful for her and, and all that she's navigated over the course of the last little bit. And uh, man, I, I just know for, for the longest, she's been quite the supporter of, of the Just Thinking Podcast and Just Thinking Ministries. And I think she's listened to every single one of our episodes. She has. All 118. Yeah, I, yeah, that's impressive. And probably more than once, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. All so, 118 yeah. episodes. We're recording episode 119 this morning. So, man, with, with, with loyal listeners like that, I mean, you, you, mm-hmm. you can't help but succeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let me get to a couple of things really quickly and, uh, and, and, and we can jump right in. First of all, I want to just be able to invite everybody to our upcoming conference. It's the, it's the G3 regional conference uh, there in Washington, D.C. G3 has teamed up with Just Thinking Ministries, uh, and we're going to be talking about the, 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 the name of the conference is Just Thinking About the Bible. Uh, we're going to be talking about the biblical sufficiency uh, and the importance of it, how really for the most part, as we look at culture, especially church culture, uh, one of the things that we witness is just a, a, a lack of confidence in scripture and its ability to address every situation that we encounter. We're going to be talking about that some uh, as it relates to the, the, the topic we're going to be sp- speaking about. But I, I just want to encourage everybody. They'll definitely want to join us September 15th through the 17th there in Washington, D.C. Speakers include Stephen Lawson, James White, Josh Bice, Vir- Virgil Walker, yours truly, Mr. Daryl Harrison, and uh, Scott Anyal. We're, we're excited. That's going to be an amazing time. There may be some additional guests uh, that join us as well. Uh, so definitely make, make your plans. Get on the website. Go to g3men.org. And uh, I'm going to do something special for our listeners, Daryl. I thought it might be cool if they're listening to this podcast uh, to, to offer them a discount code. Uh, I want to offer them thir- a 30% discount if they'll type in the, the, the letters G, the number three, JT, G3JT. Uh, if they do that, they'll get 30, a 30% discount for the registration price. And uh, just for our listeners who, who pick this up and jump on and do that, <clears throat> we look forward to, to having you with us. 
In addition to that, I, I want to also encourage folks to get uh, Just Thinking Ministries resources, the books that we have, Just Thinking About the State, Just Thinking About the State, as we get ready to roll into this next election cycle. And that book couldn't be, it, it couldn't be any more helpful during this time frame, primarily because it is a resource time and time again that you'll be able to use to examine a biblical worldview as you walk into the polls. And so uh, I, I just encourage you to grab it. Go to justthinking.me forward slash the state, justthinking.me me forward slash the state. And then finally, our second book, uh, Why Are You Afraid? Uh, it's a G3 press book. Why Are You Afraid? Uh, really came from the one of our episodes that was really uh, followed well and, and uh, highly regarded. I just want to encourage folks in the culture and climate that we're in with all of the issues that cause you to be to be fearful about things that things that, sh- that, that shouldn't matter. Uh, we want you to have the right kind of fear, godly fear, fear of God, not fear of man or fear of circumstances or the issues. That book is going to be a tremendous resource to you. Go to g3men.org forward slash why are you afraid? The one thing that I want to announce, uh, Daryl, that I'm extremely excited about, I, I, I pulled this this past week and I know you had a chance to take take a look at it, get your eyes on it which is our book, Why Are You Afraid?, has been translated uh, into Spanish. And uh, so, so we, we, will have a, we will have our first book translated, uh, not just in English, uh, but also in Spanish. Man, what are your thoughts around that? I think that's fantastic. It just kind of goes yeah. back to what you and I were talking about before we went live here on this episode, just reflecting on what God has done uh, with the Just Thinking podcast platform in the mm-hmm. little over four years that the podcast has been in existence, uh, you know, just just by God's grace, we've uh, developed a global footprint now. And to have mm-hmm. why you are why are you afraid translated into Spanish, I think yeah. is just uh, one example of the fruit of that global footprint where we're able to reach yeah. at a deeper level a lot of our listeners who. Uh, speak Spanish who are in Spanish speaking countries. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm excited to, 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 uh, to announce with you, man, to our listeners that why yeah. are you afraid yeah. has been translated into Spanish. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. We're really excited about that. More to more, definitely, definitely more to come with regard to that. Uh, other places where we'll be, uh, Daryl and I are going to be traveling together August 20th through the, uh, and 21st. We'll be at High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, August 20th and 21st. And then on August 27th and 28th, we'll be in Capitol, we'll be at Capitol Community Church uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, you'll definitely want to uh, connect with us in those two places. If you're in Pennsylvania or that regional area, uh, come check us out at High Point Baptist Church. And if you're in Raleigh, if you're in, near the area in Raleigh, North Carolina, we'll be at Capitol Community Church there. Looking forward to seeing you, bro. That's everything I've got on my end, man. And I'm, I'm ready to hand the ball back over to you and let you tee us up for what we're going to what we're going to talk about today. I appreciate that. Oh, my easy. Thanks, man. Appreciate you <laughs> handing it back over. Listen, so so Omaha, the topic we're dealing with in this episode of the Justin podcast is cultural denominationalism. Don't miss that suffix, listeners, not cultural denominations. The title of this and the focus of this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast is cultural denominationalism. And though that is a topic that you and I mutually agreed was worth dedicating an episode to Omaha, it's also a topic that was of particular interest to you. So would you mind taking a few moments to share with our listeners why it was that this particular episode was so 
uh, weighty, so burdensome for you? Why was this episode topic of such particular interest to you in this situation? Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, as anyone who's listened to the Just Thinking podcast for any length of time, they know that I've been in Southern Baptist circles for the past decade. Uh, As we came upon and have now passed uh, the most recent Southern Baptist convention, uh, the subject of denominations uh, and denominationalism is really at the fore. Uh, We're thinking about the denomination, its impact, uh, and and really examining how denominations can go off the rails. Those kinds of things Mm -hmm. were of great Mm -hmm. interest to me. Uh, as some of you know, uh, the church where I'm, a, I'm currently a member, Praise Mill Baptist Church, uh, has publicly left the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, anyone interested in the reasons for the departure can search for Josh Bice and the Southern Baptist Convention. You can do that online to know more about the specifics there. In contrast, uh, the goal of this episode of the Just Thinking podcast is not to adjudicate the SBC. Uh, However, I do want to be clear about my connection to the topic uh, and the subjects that we're about to tackle uh, as my primary interest in the subject. Now, anyone anyone who's in a process of witnessing uh, their beloved denomination go off the rails has got to ask a question or at least a couple of questions. Right. What happened? Uh, And perhaps the next question that follows that is how did we get here? Yeah. And um, to, to be fair, the SBC would claim that they are not a denomination, but a collection of autonomous local churches with shared interests and goals. Uh, they, the SBC, uh, would say that the, that the connection that these churches have is, is really based upon mutual goals, education, missions, benevolence and the like. Uh, that any they, they would also argue that any centrally organized aspect of this collective, whether it's the seminaries or missionaries, or church planting uh, is ultimately answerable to local churches or messengers. Uh, messengers are the, the, the voting uh, booth or the voting block mm-hmm. that local churches send uh, on behalf of the local church to the convention in order to vote on issues. So that needs to be clear. While, while all of that, again, that the, the, uh, the nature of, of governance for the SBC or any real denomination, all of it sounds great on paper, right? Right. Uh, any close examination of sometimes the inner workings of the SBC or again, any denomination would reflect something very different. And and this is what we're going to get into on this episode. This is why we're calling this episode cultural denominationalism. Um, Daryl, I have to say one thing, man, before I turn this back over over to you Uh, as, as my primary experience uh, is related to the SBC. Most of my examples uh, during this episode will reflect those experiences uh, as I'm most in- immediately familiar with them. So I'm going to be talking about from a standpoint of my own experience uh, in the SBC because I'm most familiar with that. I'm not as familiar with what happens in the PCA. Uh, but this by no means is an attempt to say that only the SBC is in trouble, right. simply that I'm most familiar right. with the troubles faced in this <clears throat> denomination. Uh, and so I'll be speaking from that point of view and perspective. And so that's what I've got, bro. That was the interest, my interest in the topic. And I thought maybe to, in, in fairness to a, the SBC or anybody who would listen, that would, that would be connected to that. They would hear me at least give a fair balance of who they are, who the SBC is, uh, how, how they function. Uh, and, and, and again, the, the, that what we'll share is not a direct attack with them, but simply my own experiences as I'm most familiar uh, with, you know, with my own denomination. Yeah. You, what I appreciate about, appreciate rather what, uh, about what you just said there, Omaha, is that it, it's just an example. It's a reflection of what you and I try to do 
here on every episode of the Justin Get Podcast, and that is to not just get behind these microphones and blather about stuff. We we try to set con- right. we try to set context. We try to set context, and that's exactly exactly what you've done there. Is you've established context. You've you've uh, you've uh, established some boundaries. You've laid out some some brackets to help mm-hmm. us contextualize what it is we're going to be talking about. But even more specifically, what you're individually going to be saying during this mm-hmm. episode. So I appreciate you doing that. You know, yeah. it, it was it was the 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon who regular listeners to the Just Thinking Podcast will recognize as one of our most oft-quoted theologians who said this. Mm-hmm. Spurgeon said, quote, There are in truth but two denominations upon this earth, the church and the world, unquote. So here you have Spurgeon getting us started right off the top here, Omaha, with some smoke, okay? <laughs> yep. Spurgeon says there are in truth but two denominations, upon this earth, the church mm-hmm. and the world. Now, conversely, Dr. R. Albert Moeller, current president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. said the following at a meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention in July of 1995, quoting, when a denomination begins to consider doctrine divisive, theology troublesome, and convictions inconvenient, Consider that denomination on its way to a well-deserved death, unquote. Mm. That was Dr. R. Albert Moeller in July of 1995 at the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm going to repeat that quote. When a denomination begins to consider doctrine divisive, theology troublesome, and convictions inconvenient, consider that denomination on its way to a well-deserved death. Unquote. Now, I don't know if Dr. Moeller still believes that. <laughs> I'm not saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> That's good. But I digress. <laughs> no, you, you you didn't digress. You you're right on point, bro. <clears throat> you 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 know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Oh, I know what. You, oh, I know what you're saying. I'm not Absolutely. saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. That that was 1995. <laughs> This right. is 2022. Right. It was the late Dr. Francis A. Schaefer, who in his book titled The Great Evangelical Disaster, says this, quote, Do not think that merely because a Bible-believing man is elected as an executive officer or is appointed to an important position, that this will give safety to a denomination. If the two power centers in modern denominations, if the two power centers in modern denominations, the bureaucracy and the seminaries remain in the control of liberals, nothing will be permanently changed. There must be a loving but definite practice of the purity of the visible church in any denomination if it is really to dwell in safety. Schaefer closes with this. He says, the holiness of God must be exhibited in ecclesiastical affairs. We must practice truth, not just speak about it. Come on, come on, come on. Can I have some Hammond B3 there, please? Come on, somebody. Dr. Francis A. Schaefer. (laughs) Matter of fact, that quote was so nice, I'm going to read it twice. That's right. Francis Schaefer in The Great Evangelical Disaster. Do not think 
that merely because a Bible believing man is elected as an executive officer or is appointed to an important position, that this will give safety to a denomination. If the two power centers in modern denominations, the bureaucracy and the seminaries, remain in the control of the liberals, nothing will be permanently changed. There must be a loving but definite practice of the purity of the visible church in any denomination if it is really to dwell in safety. Mm-hmm. The holiness of God must be exhibited in ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical affairs. We must practice truth, not just speak about it. Come unquote. on, man. That, I, I wonder what Schaefer would think about, about the fact that, uh, that he just got a Hammond B3, you know, if he, if he were if he I know, right? Day. I know, right? Because <laughs> Schaefer, <clears throat> if you read Schaefer, if you read Schaefer, and you, if you've seen any old videos of Schaefer uh, yep. speaking, he's really kind of laid back. He's really kind of chill. Yes. One of the most brilliant. Yeah, he'd be sh- he'd be sh- he'd be shocked by if if a hammock kind of tuned up. He'd be like, I know, man. He, he might be like, wait, 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 wake up, wake up, you know, something like that, you know. But <laughs> we 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 owed, and, and we don't dole out Hammond B threes loosely. No, you have to earn those. You have to yes. earn those, and and Schaefer yes. earned that one on this one. Amazing yes, quote, you know. And yes, I, I, I I cite those words from Spurgeon, Moeller, and Schaefer. Because they're helpful in establishing for us the context of what we'll be discussing today on the Just Thinking Podcast, uh, Omaha, namely the topic, as we said earlier, of cultural denominationalism. That's the theme of this episode that we're discussing. It's an important and necessary topic to discuss because the truth is many Protestant denominations today are guilty of specifically what the aforementioned gentlemen have pointed out. Those denominations are guilty of, as Moeller said, considering doctrine to be divisive, theology troublesome, and convictions inconvenient. And conversely, they're guilty, as Dr. Schaefer said, of failing to exhibit the holiness of God in their ecclesiastical affairs. Now, that kind of cultural acquiescence happens for only one reason, Omaha, and that reason is that those denominations have forgotten why they exist in the first place. Mm Mm-hmm. More specifically, those denominations have caved to the two-headed monster of nuance and pragmatism. Mm. So when you talk about what got us here, that's one of the answers to that question, is that these denominations have caved to the two-headed monster of nuance and pragmatism. Now, I, mm-hmm. I want to urge our listeners to consider what I've just said in light of these words from the 19th century Presbyterian theologian William Greenough Thayer Shedd known mm-hmm. uh, probably more familiar to our listeners as William G.T. Shedd, who in the book titled Evangelicalism Divided said this, quote, The secularization of Christianity and the church is one of the evil tendencies of the day and is one phase of the universalism which the church is now called upon to oppose. Mm-hmm. It is the repetition within the province of, of doctrinal theology of an attempt often made in former ages in practical propagandism. The papal church once sought to make Christianity a universal religion by adopting pagan rites and ceremonies. Charlemagne would provide universal salvation for Saxons by forcing them to be baptized at the point of a sword. Now, the attempt is to make the Christian religion a universal religion 
by emptying it, listen, folks, listen closely to this. Now the attempt is to make the Christian religion a universal religion by emptying it of its distinguishing tenets, flattering it into a system of morality and converting the righteousness, which is of faith into the righteousness, which is of the law, unquote. That was William G.T. Shedd in the book Evangelicalism Divided. Now, let me just take an aside here, Omaha, and say that when Shedd said that today, now the attempt is to make the Christian religion a universal religion by emptying it of its distinguishing tenets. Mm -hmm. Um, The first person I thought about was, uh, who's the guy, who's Purpose Driven Life guy? Um, you, you're talking about Rick Warren. Rick Warren, yeah. Rick Warren. Rick, mm-hmm. Rick Warren is the is the is the person who I immediately thought about when when Shed talks about how we have people within evangelicalism today who are trying to make the Christian religion a universal religion by emptying it of its distinguishing tenets and then flattering mm-hmm. it into a system of morality. Rick Warren is the first person I thought about. Matter of fact, in that same book, Evangelicalism Divided. The 19th century theologian of old Princeton, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, said this, quote, the chief dangers to Christianity do not come from the anti-Christian systems. Mohammedanism, that is Islam, Mohammedanism has never made inroads upon Christianity save by the sword. Nobody fears that Christianity will be swallowed up by Buddhism. It is corrupt forms of Christianity itself, which menace from time to time the life of Christianity. Why make much of minor points of difference between those who serve the one Christ? Because a pure gospel is worth preserving and is not only worth preserving, but is logically and logic will always work itself out in history. The only saving gospel, unquote. That was B.B. Warfield from the book Evangelicalism Divided. And again, I love how Warfield opened that by saying the chief dangers to Christianity do not come from the anti-Christian systems. He -hmm. said, but it's the corrupt forms of Christianity itself. Yeah. So I think about guys like Rick Warren. Rick Warren is a corrupter of Christianity. He is a danger to Christ. He's a danger to the to to the gospel. He's a he's a danger to the church. So Warfield is, is, is exactly right here. Now, having, and, that, and, and, and Warren is just one example. He's just one. Sure. But, but having quoted those words from G.T. Shedd and B.B. Warfield, I want to say at the outset of our discussion, Omaha, and, and you already alluded to this, that this episode is not meant to be a discussion of specific denominations themselves, but of how denominationalism that suffix, the suffix there is so important for you to keep in mind, listeners. We're talking about cultural denominationalism. And I define that as blind loyalty to any ecclesiastical denomination over and above the principles and precepts of Scripture. That's how I define denominationalism. So we're talking about how denominationalism can lead to a gradual disregard for the Orthodox biblical gospel out of a desire for cultural, social, and political acclaim, acceptance, and power. It's a desire that is born from the misguided, and if I may be so bold, cowardly notion 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ, instead of being a narrow road, according to Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, is actually an open-ended, multi-lane freeway whose foundations are laid with the cheap material of cultural concrete. Mm -hmm. That is precisely what we're facing today within Protestant evangelicalism, and that reality is the case regardless of denomination. So we're not talking about cultural denominations. Yes, there are cultural denominations, but those cultural denominations are what form this whole idea, this whole worldview that we call cultural denominationalism. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on Mahal? Yeah, man, I love that. <clears throat> love that opening. I, I one of the things I thought about as you were as you were taking your your quote uh, from BB Warfield uh, that the chief dangers to Christianity. Do not come from the anti. Do not come from anti-Christian systems, uh, but rather uh, from the corrupt forms of Christianity itself. I was watching a video this past week from our friend Haley Williams. I was trying to figure. I was trying to pull up her. Uh, she's got a, a podcast called Kindled. Uh, she she does a lot of great things in social media. And one of the things that she did that I saw, she was just a brief reel, uh, and she had come to the come to the, the the understanding of this truth that Warfield talked about a long time ago. Um, in the video, she mentioned the fact that, you know, it's not that she, she's not worried about, uh, you know, forces from outside uh, corrupting Christianity, but rather uh, folks from the inside claiming to be Christian uh, who are actually doing a, a great deal uh, of the corrupting. As soon as you said that, I immediately uh, thought of thought of her in that video and uh, and thought that that's 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 it. It's it's interesting though. In our modern day, we think we're coming up with brand new revelation, right? right? Uh, we, we're thinking that we we're the first ones to think of this. Uh, and I'm not saying that about her. I'm simply saying that you know, often if if we would uh, but simply go through what we're doing, going back through through the the, the works of, of of theologians like Warfield and and, and others that we constantly mention uh, on our podcast, uh, we would come to recognize, man, that, that A, they were going through the same kinds of things, and B, you know, more times than not, they, they had a very biblical worldview about it all. So those are the, that, that's kind of what I wanted to, yeah. wanted to tee up at the opening. <clears throat> Actually, I, w- I wanted to go back to a quote that you delivered and repeat it a couple of times uh, because it caught my attention uh, as I, as I uh, got a chance to kind of take a view of, of your notes um, when the quote that you delivered from, from Al Mohler, when he said, and I'm going to repeat the quote here, quote, when a denomination begins to consider doctrine divisive, theology troublesome, and convictions inconvenient, consider that denomination on its way to a well-deserved death, end quote. Now, as you laid out, like you always do, uh, the robust theological position on the issue, what that usually leaves for me, uh, and and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to do it, uh, is the is the is the examination of practical theology. How does how does the theology that that you just laid out, the theological position that you just laid out regarding a topic or subject, how does that play out in real? life in real time. And so that's kind of the task that, that I'll, I'll probably, for the most part of our time together, be driving home. And so we, we do all of that. Again, uh, the, theology proper, uh, and then we, we, we unpack practical theology. Sometimes we'll go to historic theology. Mm-hmm. What did the church think about a, mm-hmm. a particular issue for, a, for a, a period of time? And then we'll examine, it, we'll examine it through a cultural lens. How does that play out? And, and I'll, I'll attempt to do some of that in this next uh, section that I'll walk you through here. 
Um, we, again, we do all of that for the purpose of educating our listeners so that when they see something happening, uh, they can really say, see, there, there it is. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what Daryl and Virgil were actually talking mm-hmm. about. I, I can identify it now mm-hmm. with, with clarity uh, because I understand it from a theological perspective, but I also understand it from a practical application perspective as well. Now, I want to begin this section by what, what may seem to some uh, to be coming out of left field, but, 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 but follow me, if you will. Uh, I'll begin by making this statement, and the statement is this. Feminism is the default of the culture. I, I want to say that again. Feminism is the default of the culture. Now, what do I mean? In, in the unlikely event that, that any of us have been living under a rock for the past 30 years, our society has, has, has been emasculated by the feminist movement. Uh, let, let's start by explaining feminism before we identify its d- devastating impact on the church. First wave feminism uh, happened at about the turn of the 20th century, and it brought us the suffrage movement uh, with a focus on women's rights, uh, equal representation, and everything from the workforce to politics. Uh, It was during the Industrial Revolution of of the late 1910s to early 20s that we would actually see the first women working outside of the home in jobs previously filled by men. Now, of course, World War I would witness men going off to war and, and many of them never returning. So you saw the, the need, uh, at least culturally speaking, uh, for women to, to be in the, in the workplace. Uh, second wave feminism between the, the years about 1960 to about 1980s would, would witness the revolution of birth control, the birth control pill, mm-hmm. um, would, would recognize the, the, the push for equal rights. And, and this is where we get the idea of reproductive justice for the first time in the, in the, in the late 60s. Uh, this period would see the advance of Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. Um, and this cohort of women actually argued uh, that they wanted to have the same freedoms and abilities that men have in going out and actually conquering the world. Now, now for them, the only thing that was standing in their way was the biology of having children. Third wave feminism actually happened in the late uh, 1980s to, to 1990s. And here, uh, the focus was the advancement of sexual freedom, of job opportunities, and, and the challenge of everything that it meant to be a woman. Uh, with, with third wave feminism, their, their motto was question everything. Uh, and they questioned everything from womanhood, what it means to be a woman, to gender. Uh, they, they challenged beauty norms, sexuality, femininity, and even masculinity. Th- then finally, we come to what's, what's now known as fourth wave feminism. Uh, it began in 2012, and, and this, this form of feminism is actually characterized by a focus on empowering women. Uh, you and I are, are, are incredibly familiar with this form of feminism because it's, it's through this form of feminism that we get the lens of intersectionality yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the idea that, that women will, will have a greater sense of equality if they can connect uh, at the intersection of, of their oppression. Uh, th- this is this is where the the oppression Olympics uh, comes into play for women's issues in particular. Now, now let me pause here and slow down simply to say that that understanding these things in, in a, from a cultural lens is important as a backdrop. Now, wh- why do I say that? I, I say that because unfortunately, in our day, the church is no longer impacting culture. I- instead, culture is having a greater impact on the church. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up, B. Hold up, though. 
That was so profound. But see, you laid it out there with such a steady articulation. I think that might have mm. slipped by some folks. Yep. So can you yep. put the car in reverse, back it up yep. about 30 seconds, and run that by him again, bro? That was that was yeah. powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I spent the time unpacking first wave, second wave, third wave, fourth wave feminism. That's a lot of content in, that, that, that I walked through. I did that because I think it is important for us to have a clear understanding of the of the cultural lens by which feminism has has approached society at large. I, I did all of that because as you understand that backdrop, uh, we have to then turn the page to to the church and church culture. Uh, I, I, I said that, th- that there's a reason for that. Uh, why? Because unfortunately, in our current day, the church is not impacting the culture. Instead, culture is having a greater impact on the church. Now, it's important to remember scriptural sufficiency. Why? Well, because when we examine scripture, it makes all of the things that I just walked through absolutely clear. You can listen to what all I just shared and go, wow, that's kind of all over the place. It's kind of confusing. What, What caused women to do this? And why do we go from first to second wave to third wave to fourth wave? Listen, you don't need to, 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 to allow culture uh, to interpret culture. You can let scripture interpret culture. Mm. You see, here's the mm. reality. Ever since Genesis 3, uh, God warned Eve that she would desire her husband and that he, her husband in particular, would rule over her. Now, the word desire there doesn't mean that she would want him physically or sexually. Instead, what it means is that she, the woman, would desire the role and position and authority of the man, particularly her husband, and that her husband would rule over her. Uh, These are the words of God, and therefore they are essential to note. So what we see happening uh, in culture with all of these waves of feminism are are really a a, a clear... result of, uh, fruit of what God said Eve would, would desire in the garden after the fall. Uh, the, the pinnacle of human history was the coming of Christ and the establishment of his church. And in the New Testament, we witness the fulfillment of the promised Messiah as he establishes that church. Now it is with crystal clarity as we move forward that Paul instructs Timothy regarding the establishment of his church by saying, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's First Timothy 2, 12. So how is this instruction actually playing itself out uh, in the church in 2022? Well, no one should be surprised to the answer of that, right? We, we all, if you're taking any notes, uh, uh, write this down. Here's the practical application part of all that I just laid out. So I, I laid out this big, long cultural uh, backdrop. I then walked you to the pages of scripture to show you uh, why that was happening. And, and we, we moved forward to examine the church uh, and the instructions of the church. And now we want to look at how that's playing out in a practical way. In May of 2021, after ordaining uh, three women pastors, uh, the the man you just mentioned, Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church, Mm -hmm. uh, Darryl, we just mentioned him, right? Yep, yep. 
uh, of Saddleback, uh, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. He came under fire as images from the ordination service appeared on social media. He, he had ordained three women. And by June of 2021, the annual Southern Baptist Convention was call, uh, called for the disfellowship of Saddleback Church, uh, and, and, and it had reached the convention floor. Uh, the Credentials Committee, which reviews such requests, was set to respond during the 2022 convention. So here he, in 2021, Warren puts three women uh, in the role of pastor. Uh, 2021, Saddleback is called out on the floor of the convention. 2022, they had a whole year to examine what took place and then to circle back this past year in June to figure out how they were going to handle this particular issue. Now, keep in mind, I had just read to you 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul instructs Timothy how his church is to be set up. A woman is to learn quietly with all submissiveness, not to to permit a woman to teach or use authority or exercise authority over man. She's to remain quiet. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Uh, Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived as the transgressor. As I walk through that, here's here's where we actually are. The Credentials Committee reviews the requests regarding the disfellowshipping of any church, and they were set to respond in the, during the convention in June of 2022. Now, now in addition to the three women pastors, I want to I I set this up as well. In addition to the three women pastors, Rick Warren was, uh, had selected a husband and wife pastoral team as his successor at Saddleback Church. Now, the growing concern is that Saddleback is not, the, the growing concern within the SBC churches, in particular the SBC denomination, is that Saddleback Church is not the only Southern Baptist church engaged in the practice of, of ordaining women as pastors. Internal reports suggest that several churches have women with the title pastor or co-pastor alongside their husbands in leadership. And furthermore, studies indicate that many Southern Baptists would, would welcome a woman pastor. Now, one study Daryl, get this. One study actually noted that that 73 percent of of female Southern Baptist women actually favor a woman in the pulpit. And and, and they they compared that to 58 percent of Southern Baptist men. So half of of all women, four in 10 and, and half of all women, rather, and four in 10 men actually strongly support women clergy. I mean, can, can we say Houston, we have a problem? I know, right? Houston, we have a big yeah. problem. We have a big problem. Now, the Baptist faith and message has served Baptist, Southern Baptists in determining their collective belief uh, held by the 40,000 churches that make up the convention. Uh, and, and the Baptist faith and message clearly states this, quote, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. W- with all of that as, as backdrop, Let's go back to the Credentials Committee, who in 2022, uh, they sit down, uh, they, they meet uh, behind the scenes for a year, uh, they show up at the convention, and, and here is what they actually shared uh, on the floor of the convention after having a year to review this. A, not only a year to review this, having, having the Baptist Faith and Message say what it says, and most importantly, having Scripture dictate how Christ's church is going to be set up. They said this, quote, based upon the information available to us currently, including direct communication with Pastor Rick Warren, pause. (laughs) I I don't even, I I don't even, bro, like, that's where we're going? Like, we, scripture, scripture, I I don't, man, I don't even, 
I don't even know what to say. Like I, that, that someone would take to the podium and, and they would start the address by based upon all the information to us currently. Okay. Did we forget about the Bible? Did, did anybody throw that out? I mean, and including direct communication with pastor Rick Warren, like, like his authority has anything to, to, to let me keep reading. They said this quote, we have concluded that we are not yet prepared to make a recommendation regarding Saddleback Church, recognizing that there are differing opinions. Oh, boy. Pause. Oh, boy. Pause. Oh, man. Differing oh boy. opinions. Whose opinion? Okay, let me keep reading. Man. That we recognize the differing opinions regarding the intent of the office of pastor as stated in the Baptist faith and message. End quote. Now, again, the question you've got to be asked, differing opinions of who? Uh, the, the question that also needs to be asked is that, is that what has God said? That's what needs to be asked. Uh, what does his word say uh, about his church? Let me continue. According to the credentials committee, members of the, uh, according to the credential committee members, the words of the Baptist faith and message are unclear and confusing. Therefore, another year would be necessary to determine what the words actually meant on the page. So, so, so let me break down what's actually happening. If you're wondering why the confusion, why there's confusion on the words of the page, here's what's happening. People are arguing between two things. So let me, show, let me lay those out. They're arguing with one's ability to separate the office of pastor from the notion of a gifting of pastor. So, so again, what does this sound like to you, to you and me who've done uh, everything uh, uh, with, with regard to deconstructionism, yep. with regard to, to, to CRT? What, yep. what, are, what are we doing here? We're deconstructing the yep. meaning of words Man. for the purpose of inserting our own, our own agenda. And again, go back to what I said earlier. I spent the time unpacking first wave, second wave, third wave, fourth wave feminism to show you how the cultural influence was infecting the church. I then set up for you what the church is to look like based upon how Christ has determined it. And now what you see happening is, is that same uh, uh, effect imprint of culture infecting the church to the degree that we're now questioning the office of a pastor mm -hmm. from the gifting of pastor. Mm -hmm. And, and, and th there's also the question of the function of a pastor with the title of a pastor. Mm -hmm. the, the, the goal of the deconstruction in that is for the purpose of saying, you know, we could separate those things and attach a different meaning to gifting and, and, and function and, and leave for the men the quote unquote office and title. That's, that's really actually a, a garbage way to do things. I'm, I'm about to finish this section. But let me just simply say this. Scripture is clear from Genesis 3 that this is not an issue of gifting or office. This is not an issue of function mm -hmm. or title. This is an issue of a sinful heart that desires to do what God has commanded us not to do. Man, ho, 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 and, ho, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need some hammering right here. I need some hammer right here, bro, because you just hit him like Missy Elliott would say with the hee hee. So go ahead and hit him again with that. <laughs> That, that, that's that's truth. That's truth, Virgil. We would be honest. That's truth that our hard hearts don't want to hear. We Absolutely. don't hear it. So give Absolutely. me some Hammond, bro, as you repeat that again. Absolutely. This is not scripture is clear from the beginning. I read to you earlier. I walked you through the impact of 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 the fall in Genesis three that the woman would desire her husband's position, role, and authority. This is this has been clear again from Genesis three. This is an issue of a sinful heart. Not an issue of the office 
or title, not an issue of the function or gifting of a pastor. This is the issue of a sinful heart desiring to do what God has Man. commanded ought not to be done. Come on, B. And a, followed by a willingness to justify one's desires, right? Since 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 we apparently, based upon uh, our reading of 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 uh, the Baptist faith and message, our consultation with Rick Warren, we have to know. We, we must know better than God how His church should run. So we need another year to figure things out. God, God really probably didn't understand, you know, the kind of situation that we would have set up in our current day. That's that's the arrogance of the thought behind. Wow. All, all of that, um, in, in in the mind of, of again the, the credentials uh, committee, they 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 operated in the same way that Eve did, right? What did Eve do in Genesis three mm-hmm. at, at the point of the fall? She looked at the food, uh, and even though she was instructed not to eat, she looked at the food. She said, "Oh, that's good. That's good for food, right? That's a delight to my eyes, uh, and, and and that the tree is desirous to make one wise." And what did she do? She took it and ate of it. She took it and ate of it. Yep. She did what ought not be done. Right. Uh, and that, that's what we're witnessing happening in the culture. We all know what comes next. As I close this lengthy section, man, I'm, I'm just, I'll go back to the, to the Moeller quote that, that you delivered from the beginning of, of your section when you asked the question when, when, or, or, or made the statement, the statement that, uh, that, that Al Moeller made, quote, when a denomination begins to consider doctrine divisive, theology troublesome, and convictions inconvenient, Consider that denomination on its way to a well-deserved death, end quote. I turn my time back over to you. The, what I like, I like that entire section. It was brilliant, but I love how you walked us back through Genesis 3. You walked us back through Genesis 3 because what we're seeing here, what we're talking about in this episode, really, and what you just brilliantly walked us through, bro. It's like you were building a a wall, brick by brick, man. You just walked us through brick by brick. One brick, then you lay out this, the mortar. Another brick on top of the mortar, then you put more mortar. Then another brick. That's exactly what you just did. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, man, what arrogance we have. What arrogance is on yes. display here? Yes, yes, Listen, yes. We're the ones who sinned against God and we're acting like God sinned against us. Who, who are we to tell God what his church should look like? We sinned against him. Come on, man. We're the sinners in this. We're the sinners. We sinned against the holy God. That's why I love how you took us back to Genesis three, bro, because that's where it all begins. That mm-hmm. was brilliant. V. We sinned against God. Yes. Who are we to tell God, well, we need to take a couple years? <laughs> right. God's already told you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've, we've got a podcast episode, right? Has God really said? Well, we track, we, we cover this whole issue. Yep. If, yep. if you're interested in getting us, uh, or listening to us get into detail about this whole uh, pastoral nuance here, go ahead, go back and listen to the episode titled, Has God Really Said? Mm-hmm. And Virgil, I will say this as well before I go into my next segment. I loved how you took us, bro. You were you were absolutely right. If the listeners hung in there with you, then mm-hmm. they clearly saw why you began your yes. argument there with going through first wave feminism. Yes. Because it all makes yes. sense now. It all makes yes. sense now. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, brilliant exegesis, man, really. Exposition, rather. Brilliant exposition of 
Thank how you, we man. got Thank here, you, man, and how it yeah. all connects to Genesis 3. And I want to argue this. We're already in fifth-wave sem- uh, feminism. <laughs> yes, we are. We're right? already in fifth-wave yep. feminism. Fifth-wave yep. feminism is the, immacula- is, is the emasculation of men. Yes. It's yes. the elimination yes. of masculinity. Yes. Okay? It's the elimination of masculinity. And you're seeing that, uh, t- to your point, Virgil, about the practical application of how to recognize all this you're seeing Mm -hmm. that in the influence and the uh, permeation of transgenderism transgender indoctrination transgender education the degree to which the lgbtq uh, lobby has gained a uh, stronghold in public uh, education institutions Mm -hmm. you're seeing Mm -hmm. it in the to the extent that uh what what they call drag is now being normalized in the culture, yes. uh, and, yes. and having uh, many uh, many more doors open to it uh, than it would have even five years ago. We don't have to go a long way yes. back. So what Mm-mm. you're seeing, you're seeing fifth wave feminism mm-hmm. work itself out in the culture right now. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and you brought up the term intersectionality earlier, and I just want to, I, I hesitate to recommend this book because this is a, uh, a woman who is pro-critical race theory. But if you want to learn more about uh, Virgil's uh, brilliant point uh, uh, about how intersectionality has a role in all of this, even within the church, I want to recommend to you a book titled Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory. Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory by Patricia Hill Collins. Okay, Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory by Patricia Hill Collins. Collins, and that will help you understand this a lot more. So, Verge, brilliant segment, bro. I really appreciate the time you took to prepare that and walk our listeners through that. Praise God. Thanks, brother. You know, the reality, Omaha, is that many Protestant denominations today are folding like lawn chairs. They're folding like lawn chairs, all in effort to appease a sinful and ungodly culture. They they advocate Mm -hmm. things like nuance and winsomeness as if those attitudes were now somehow the new B attitudes by which professing Christians are supposed to live all under the guise, all under the guise that exhibiting those new B attitudes will somehow quote unquote, attract unbelievers to the church. See, this is what people Mm -hmm. like Rick Warren are up to. This is, this is what they're, they're, this is what they're into now. They're leveraging this idea of nuance and winsomeness as the new beatitudes that Christians right. should live by so as to attract right. unbelievers to the church. It, it's really an absurd notion to begin with, Omaha, because when you think about it, because, because Scripture is so clear that unrepentant sinners aren't attracted to the gospel, they're attracted to their sin. Yes, absolutely. Unbelievers are not attracted to the gospel, they're attracted to their sin. They want to remain as far away from the heart-convicting gospel of Jesus Christ as they possibly can. Are we not seeing that play out in the reaction to the post-Roe v. Wade decision by the Supreme Court? Oh, bro, come on, man. Absolutely. We are seeing the depravity of man, the depravity of the human heart, play out in ways that I have never, ever seen before going to any and all kinds of lengths to be able to still legally murder unborn children. 
Absolutely. So no, this culture doesn't want anything attracted. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Attracted, really? Attracting unbelievers, they want nothing to do with the gospel. Now I want our listeners to consider what I've just said in light of what Dr. John MacArthur says in his book titled Ashamed of the Gospel, subtitled When the Church Becomes Like the World. Dr. MacArthur says this, quote, the influence of the church within our culture continues to diminish. Our society has grown steadily darker and the message the church is now giving to the world is more confused and confusing than perhaps any time since the dark ages. What has happened is this. The church's true message is still being drowned by our slick, market-savvy masters of hype. Leadership in the church has been commandeered by carnival barkers rather than men who are serious-minded proclaimers of God's word. I got to stop you. I got to stop you, man. This is... <laughs> this is... This is so rich. Like I, 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 the plain spokenness, the clarity, the, 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 the choice and selection of words to, to describe what we're witnessing is profound and should not go unnoticed. Uh, what, what, what you're walking through in this is so, is so perfect. I, I'm actually going to pick it up in, in my notes. I just had to stop you because this is, that, that's worth saying twice. <laughs> what you know? Gladly, what what, what you talking about? What, what, what has happened? Absolutely. Yeah, you got, I'll run you it back. I'll run it back. Yeah. Quoting Dr. John MacArthur here, he says the influence of the church within our culture continues to diminish. Our society has grown steadily darker, and the message the church is now giving to the world is more confused and confusing than perhaps any time since the Dark Ages. What has happened is this: the church's true message is still being drowned by our slick market savvy masters of hype leadership in the church has been commandeered. I love this by MacArthur leadership in the church has been commandeered by carnival barkers rather than men who are serious minded proclaimers of God's word. They are to, there are today very few clarion voices declaring the gospel plainly and accurately to the world. Many who have risen to positions of prominence and influence Rick Warren in the evangelical community simply are not spiritually qualified to lead. And naturally, by the way, the Rick Warren insert, that was me. That wasn't John MacArthur. That was me uh, <laughs> uh, 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 inserting that there, okay? MacArthur right, says, right. many who have risen to positions of prominence and influence in the evangelical community simply are not spiritually qualified to lead. And naturally, they are not leading well. Today, more than more than ever, evangelical church leaders are held captive to the notion that their main duty toward the world is to study the trends of popular culture and try desperately to get on every passing bandwagon as quickly as possible. The goal, MacArthur says, he closes with this. The goal is to woo people into the kingdom by making Christianity seem cool and contemporary, unquote. Now, I'm just going to let that marinate for a second with our listeners, because when you look, when you listen closely to Mark Arthur's, just that last sentence there, the goal is to woo people into the kingdom by making Christianity seem cool and contemporary. I'm just going to let our listeners marinate on that for a second, Omaha, because I'm thinking that right now there are names and faces coming to their own minds who fit that description. 
We don't need to name them here. They're thinking about them already. So no, no unbeliever is ever attracted to Jesus as if they have the innate capacity, let alone the ability to make a volitional decision in and of themselves to believe in him anyway. No, a person who believes in Jesus comes to him. They don't go to him. Did you hear me, listeners? No, a a, a person who comes to faith in Christ, a person who believes in Jesus comes to Jesus. They don't go to him. And what I mean by that is that an unbeliever comes to Jesus because God mercifully draws him or her to himself. That's John 6, 44. I mean, just look around you today. This world wants absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. Not the biblical Jesus anyway. Now, they'll yes. accept. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Hold up. Wait a minute. <laughs> got to put some bass in it. You got to go back with that one, man. Ex- unpack that just a little bit cuz that that what you said was 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 really profound and I think our listeners can miss it. I know they get this, but again it's an it's a it's a point of punctuation. Uh so so what what back through what 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 what, is, what kind of Jesus are people interested in? Yeah, yeah. So so I want to um, the point I'm making here this is actually a little bit of biblical exegesis as it relates to how salvation happens. So the lie in the culture, the lie of a cultural Christianity or cultural denomination or the, the, the what I call Rick Warrenism is that the, the church can actually uh, uh, attract the world to it. I'm arguing against that. I'm saying here that no unbeliever is ever attracted to Jesus as if they have the innate capacity or ability to make a volitional decision in, in and of themselves to believe in him. no. A person who believes in Jesus, they come to Jesus. They don't go to him. They don't go to Christ because they don't want to. Their nature is such as that they don't, they do not want him. Okay. And what I mean by that is to say, I need to add clarity here. An unbeliever comes to Jesus because God mercifully draws him or her to himself. That's John six forty four. But when you That's look good. around you today, you look around you today, the world wants nothing. You see evidence all around you that the world wants absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, not the biblical Jesus anyway. Now, they'll take the Rick Warren Jesus. They'll take what I call hippie Jesus, who just walks around holding up a peace sign with wearing a, a laurel of flowers around his head, uh, saying peace, love, peace, love, peace, love, peace, love, as if those are the only two words that ever came out of Jesus' mouth. But no, this world wants absolutely nothing to do with the biblical Jesus. And apart from the grace of God working monergistically to bring an unbeliever to faith in Christ, that unbeliever will not believe in him. That's 1 Corinthians 1.30 and Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. The reason he or she will not believe in Christ is because they cannot believe in him. Unless and until God regenerates their sin loving heart so that they come to faith in Christ. So this whole idea, this whole idea of attracting to world, the world to the church is fallacious to begin with. As I said already, Omaha sinners are attracted to their sin. That's what they're attracted to. They love darkness, not light. That's John three nineteen. But believe it or not, Omaha, there are denominations today that naively naively believe that you can bring a sinner to the light by turning off the light. Mm. <laughs> That's good. 
Ah, oh, that's so good. That is so nice. You got to say it twice. Can I get some Hammond on this one? Yeah, I'm going to ask for Let's my own it. Hammond right here. Let's do it. Let's do it. There are denominations today that naively believe that you can bring a sinner to the light by turning off the light. Did you hear me, listeners? They believe you can bring a sinner out of the world by becoming like the world. Yeah, yeah. Now, how does that make any sense biblically? Yeah, make Make that make sense. Make, please it make that make, make sense, sense to me. It doesn't make You're gonna sense. bring a person to the light by turning off the light. Right. It, it's what it's what Dr. Francis Schaefer called latitudinarianism. That, that's a very long word. Schaefer right, called right, it right. latitudinarianism. Uh, latitudinarianism is the idea of giving latitude. So that's the root word of that term is latitude. Giving latitude to various theological perspectives whatever those perspectives may be so that the church comes across as inoffensive, inoffensive and welcoming to everyone and to every worldview. That's what Schaefer means by that term latitudinarianism. But see, it's latitudinarianism that ultimately leads to doctrinal compromise and accommodation. It's as if those denominations, Omaha, have completely forgotten the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, where Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, it should be noted here that the word peace, the word peace in Matthew 10, 34, is the Greek noun Irene, E-I-R-E-N-E, Irene, which translated denotes, now listen closely to this definition. That word peace, the Greek word is Irene, Translate, translated denotes not only the absence of war or strife, but also the absence of agreement or accord. Are y'all following me here? That's good. In, in other words, what Jesus is declaring, he's declaring unambiguously that he is not a God of social, cultural, or political appeasement or acquiescence or amelioration. In fact, to drive that point home even further, in the very next verse, Matthew 10, verse 35, Jesus makes his statement in verse 34 even clearer when he says, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now notice that the word against appears three times in Matthew 10, 35. That word against is the Greek preposition kata, K-A-T-A, kata, which translated means to cause hostility. So you can literally read Matthew 10, 35 as Jesus saying, I came to cause hostility between these relationships that he mentioned. I came to cause hostility between a father and his son, between a daughter and her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I came to cause hostility. So contrary to the kind of kumbaya, Rodney King type of ecumenicism being preached, practiced, and propagated by many Protestant denominations today, in which we're all supposed to just get along, true biblical, a truly biblical denomination is to draw doctrinal distinctions that clearly denote what they believe and stand for in contradistinction to what the world believes and stands for. That's good. That's what a truly biblical denomination does. Thoughts, Omaha? 
Bro, that was such an awesome section there as you walked us through Matthew 10, 34. Here's the crazy part, man. And and, and again, these are not in, in any of my prepared notes. And, and I know you, you and I, visually, we can see one another, man. And you, you can see how the word has impacted me over here, man. I'm just like, holy cow. That, that, that section, I love that you brought that section of scripture to the issue of, of winsomeness, of being liked, of, of, you know, of the calls for, for unity. Uh, and, and most calls for unity have nothing to do with, with, with the, with the, the benchmark of truth. They have everything to do mm-hmm. with, you know, like you said, the kumbaya kind mm-hmm. of, kind of expression. And so for, for you to take uh, us through Matthew 10, 34 and 35, and, and then, and then again, to translate kata, which means to cause hostility, bro, that, <laughs> that's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. And it's incredibly helpful, not only to me as I listen to it, um, but I know it will be as well to our listeners as they're thinking through some of these issues and calls by their denomination uh, appeals to, to this cultural idea that, that really is not, is not marked out uh, in scripture. Mm-hmm. You, you, you use the word in, in contradistinction mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. what the word actually, mm-hmm. actually says. Right. right. And so th- that's, that's incredibly important. Let me, let me jump into, into my notes, man. If, if, if you've ever taken the time to uh, visit a church online and, and listen to their Sunday services, I think you'll notice a trend. Uh, and, and it's a trend that, that I, I believe Dr. Uh, John MacArthur mentioned in his quote. It's the carnival barker atmosphere yes. and, and, the sh- and, and, and the showmanship often of, of praise bands or, or the praise team. And again, if, if you, the listener, have not taken the time to, to jump online and maybe go on YouTube and kind of scroll and search, uh, I don't know that I would recommend it. But uh, it's definitely something that, that you can do in, in an effort to validate or verify the comments that I'm going <laughs> to make uh, as I move uh, forward through, my, uh, through this particular section of commentary. Uh, one day this past week, man, I was on YouTube and I happened to stumble upon uh, a YouTube channel of, of an SBC church in Coral Springs, Florida, by the name of Church by the Glades Church by the glaze. Now, I don't know. I don't know. If you, are you familiar with church by the glaze? I, I've heard the name. I've heard that name before. Yeah. I've heard the name. I know what the location is, but haven't, haven't really studied yeah. them. No. Yeah. Don't, don't study. Them. Don't study. Them, bro. <laughs> don't, don't, don't study. Them. Allow, allow my, allow my, allow my, 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 my forward commentary to be sufficient for you to have a clear picture of, of church, of church by the glaze. Okay. Uh, like, like most churches, again, they posted their services on their YouTube page. Uh, and at the opening of every service, the praise band or praise team opens the service. I'm using air quotes for service, okay? They open the service with a full cover or makeover uh, or remake of a secular pop, rock, R&B, or hip-hop song in preparation for the message. So <clears throat> there, there are songs from like John Cougar Mellencamp uh, on their website, Run DMC. There are title tracks from the 80s and 90s. There are even dance medleys from the most popular uh, tracks of that era. And all of this is done in an effort to warm up the crowd and to make them feel comfortable and, and to, quote unquote, bring them into the church service. Now, it's, it's these kinds of carnival barker displays that MacArthur was actually writing about. Uh, it's the idea that we somehow, by being more likable, 
have some ability. You were mentioned it before to draw people to Christ, yeah, right? Yeah. That's the that that that's that's the motivation uh, that that really drives this kind of behavior. Here's the truth. What what churches like Church by the Glades and other churches that mimic that behavior, what they've done is that they've they've actually abandoned the power of the gospel uh, for the power of the girl band to save sinners. Whoa, whoa, That's what's whoa, actually whoa, taking whoa. place. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Wait a minute. You mean to tell me we got a one to twin powers activate moment going on right here? Absolutely. They, they, Absolutely. They, they, v, I'm sorry, bro. You got to say that again. That was so nice. <laughs> you got to say it twice. Do it, man. Let me run run man. that by for our folks, bro. Yeah, for, for churches like Church on Church by the Glaze and other churches that mimic that whole idea of, of warming up the crowd, of getting people ready and in and, and an effort to provide the right, quote unquote, atmosphere uh, to make them feel comfortable to bring them into this church service. What they've done is they've actually abandoned the power of the gospel for the power of the girl band uh, to save oh, sinners. Wow. That's what's actually taking place. It, it's, it's as if we think God doesn't know how to grow his church, you know, they, 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 folks like that, they meet in boardrooms and, and think to themselves that, that, you know, God, you know, I, we, love, we love the Lord, but he, he really didn't understand the power of MTV uh, and how the church can use its music to save the souls of sinners. Uh, so, so churches, again, like the one I mentioned, uh, they, they figure that they can show God how it's really done. You know, their mantra is scripture doesn't say we can't do it. Uh, so let's go for it in Jesus name. That's kind of how they, how right. they approach uh, what they're doing. Gone are the days for many denominations, pastors and churches where there's a strict reliance on the preached word of God and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to pierce the hearts of lost sinners. V, can I interject something right there, bro? Absolutely. Man. I just want to say I concur 100% with what you're saying. And I will put it this way. Let's just be honest. Let's just keep it real. Because yep. that's what we do on the Just Thinking Podcast. Let's just keep this thing real. You got a bunch of people in churches today that don't believe the gospel. They just don't believe yes. it. They do not believe yes, it. Yes. They yep. don't believe it. And they would be doing us all a favor if they would just come out and confess that. Just come out and confess you don't believe it. Right. You don't. You know you don't. You don't believe it. You don't believe that the gospel is what the gospel says the gospel is. That is the power of Absolutely. God unto salvation. You don't believe that. That the gospel mm-hmm. itself and the God. When I say the gospel itself, I mean the gospel alone. Yes. The gospel alone. Sola Scriptura. Sola yep. Scriptura. Yep. Yep. You don't believe in sola scriptura Mm -hmm. you don't you need to just come out and acknowledge that if your church your denomination just do us all a favor and admit it you don't believe the gospel that you profess to believe in that you profess to be exclaiming that you profess to be proclaiming that you profess to be singing about you don't believe that absolutely Go ahead, V. I just had to get that out, man. Absolutely. <laughs> well, when, when you think about what you just said, it, the, the reality of that really, I mean, the, the punch really lands, right? At the end of the day, they don't believe 
uh, the message of the gospel, their thought is that whatever they can come up with and create the glitz, the glam, the, 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 you know, the, the fireworks, uh, the, the displays, you know, of, 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 of chaos really that, that, uh, that form themselves as, as music videos, uh, for the consumption of, of those who show up at their churches. They think that's the power. Uh, they're trusting in those things to be uh, the power of God unto salvation. It, it, it's, it was the powerful preaching of George Whitfield that shook a nation and sparked the great awakening. And it was, it was, it was Whitfield who said this, quote, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel, end quote. Man, come on. That's, that's, that's what we're missing. We're missing people who understand the power of the gospel to the degree that they believe others may be able to preach better, but at the end of the day, there's no better gospel to be preached than the gospel of Jesus Christ. VV, can, I, can I interrupt you yep. one more time? Yeah. Bro? Yep. I just, yep. Dude, you just, I, I can't blame myself for interrupting you here, man. I'm, I blame you Go for it. because you come with such fire, bro, <laughs> that it's, it's just, it's just stoking up this desire within me, man, to, 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 to add these uh, commentary on, sure. on thoughts that I'm having. See, yep, yep. here's the thing. Here's the thing. The reason, the, the, the reason, uh, 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 ch- uh, churches like the church of the, of the glaze <clears throat> mm-hmm. leverages an emotional aesthetic. So as to, uh, garner a, an emotional response is because we don't see ourselves as sinners. We just see ourselves as broken. See, that that word broken is the operative word in many of the hymns and songs that these praise bands, that these girl bands that you talk about actually sing about. That's the word broken. I tell yes. you, you will find the word broken. I haven't done a study on this. I, haven't, I don't have an Excel spreadsheet laid out for this yet, but mm-hmm. I guarantee you, that the, the, the one word that you will see most often next to the word love in many of these hymns is the word broken. Mm-hmm. We're not sinners anymore. We're broken. Right. We haven't violated God's law. We just haven't tried hard enough. We're, 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 we're broken now. We're not sinners. Right. Right. So you look at Matthew one twenty one, where the angel declared, you, have, you shall call his name Jesus. Because he shall save his people from their, he didn't say brokenness. Right. He shall save his people from their sins. Mm-hmm. Not their brokenness. Yep. You're not broken. You're dead. Ephesians 2, 1. We were dead in our trespasses mm-hmm. and sins. So we've, we sort of talked about deconstruction earlier. We've deconstructed this idea of sin. We, yes, we have a good. we have a new homodiology that's, that's being taught. We have a new doctrine. Mm-hmm. The, the new homodiology is the doctrine of brokenness. It's not the doctrine of sin. <laughs> yes, it's the doctrine that's of brokenness. It. That's where you get these soft, jazz handsy hymns that bring these people into these churches that draw them in because they it makes them feel uh they they don't they don't convey a sense of guilt. Mm-mm. Oh, I'm just broken like everybody else in here. And the reason I'm changing my tone of voice is because that's what the music does. It, it, it gets you in there soft first, and then it sort of escalates to a crescendo. Right. You see, right. more lights, more smoke, more percussion, more Hammond B3s, you know, you mm-hmm. name it. So, But that's all part of how we're deconstructing 
a biblical doctrine of harmodiology and replacing that with a doctrine of brokenness. I just want to say mm-hmm. that, man. Go ahead. That's great, man. It was English churchman and Puritan writer William Grenall once who, who once said this, quote, a minister without boldness is like a smooth file, a knife without an edge, a sentinel that is afraid to let off his gun. If men will be bold in sin, ministers must be bold to reprove, end quote. Man. Yeah. Known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said this, quote, the preaching of Christ is a whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound which makes all of hell shake, end quote. Finally, Daryl, a quote from one of your favorites, uh, Robert Murray McShay, uh, he said this, quote, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. A word spoken by, a word spoken by you when your conscience is clear and your heart is full of God's spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin, end quote. Far too many so-called preachers, I I put that in in air quotes, are are nothing more than little boys who long for the fame found off of a sold-off episode of a reality television show. Bro, (laughs) Oh my gosh. V, Hammond B3, give me some HB3, bro. As you repeat that, it is so true. Kill it, bro. Do it again, man. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's wow. the reality. When, 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 when you've let go of scripture, when you've let go, I, 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 as I wrote this, I pictured in my mind what's happening to this to this individual who's at home, uh, getting ready to head to to the church that he he leads as the quote unquote pastor of the church. Uh, and and I and I just this 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 sentence actually rolled off of my brain, uh, I, I, and and I thought this is this is this is actually what what we're seeing, which is this: far too many preachers, and I have that in quotes. Far too many preachers are nothing more than little boys who long for the fame that's found from a sold-off episode of a reality television show. Man. End quote. That's what, that's wow. what, that's what I thought. Sunday after, Sunday after Sunday, man, they bounce into the pulpit with the exegetical mastery of a five-year-old child delivering a summer blockbuster movie title that passes as a quote-unquote sermon for the consumption of men's souls. Gone are the days when the vast majority of men thundered from the pulpit with the trusted preaching of men like Whitfield and Spurgeon, men with the plain spoken, unfiltered clarity of a John MacArthur. And I'll even add a a, a Dr. Josh Bice. Most preaching today is pitiable and lacks any hint of masculinity Mm. or power. Mm. It's 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 milk toast men with milk toast messages delivered to milk toast members in the pew. And then we wonder why the church is so impotent and weak. Why? Well, it's, it's because we've been influenced by the culture rather than being the salt and light the culture needs, right? Mod- modern evangelicalism actually fears the disapproval of men much more than the disapproval Man, of God. And our, and, our, and our denominations are rife with the pragmatism to prove it. Comments like those in the SBC convention where where the standard phrase to any disagreement was, quote, the world is watching, end quote, account for the depth of this pragmatic rot. 
Churches have taken this path only to be counted on and can only be counted on rather to stand when truth is so popular uh, that public opinion has already settled the issue. Now, let's speak the truth here. Clear convictions actually bring about powerful sermons. Mm. And, and when one has to nuance every idea after carefully examining and surveying the emotional tolerance level of the weakest among us, all the power of the preaching is gone. Mm. I, I'll say this, man, and turn it back over to you. While examining the preaching of a, of a specific denomination as a whole can be challenging, uh, it is critical for you. Now, I'm talking to you, the listener. It is critical for you, the listener, to ask yourself some important questions about your experience in your local church. I've got three things I want you to consider. Number one, when was the last time that, when was the last time that you left your local church on the Lord's day, having the, the feeling of, of a, of a stomach churning need to repent of sin based upon what you heard. Wow, Let me say that again. <clears throat> when was the last time you left your local church on the Lord's day, feeling a stomach churning need to repent of sin based upon what you heard preached in that sermon. Number two, when was the last time you left your local church on the Lord's day convicted to increase your prayer life, spend time disciplining, discipling rather your family uh, and growing in your passion and understanding of God's word. Let me say that again. When was the last time you left your local church on the Lord's day convicted to increase your prayer life, spend time discipling your family and grow in your passion and understanding of the word of God. Lastly, thirdly, when was the last time you left your local church on the Lord's day and were convicted to end the lustful thoughts in your heart and walk in greater degrees of sanctification? Now, if this isn't happening consistently, I would argue that you lack a steady diet of the preached word of God. And while this may be, may be, may be normative as a, part of, as, as a part of the culture within your denomination, I would first check to see if it's true of your local church. If the word of God is being preached, scripture is actually clear that, it, that, that, the word, that his word, the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. That's all I got. You know, Omaha, as I listened to you um, walk us through that amazing section right there, that, that sort of, that, that mantra, the world is watching, just kind of stood out to me. It just makes me sick to, to my stomach to hear it. I'm actually surprised the uh, Southern Baptist Convention hadn't put that on a T-shirt or a bumper sticker yet. Because <laughs> they, they, they regurgitate it so much. And it, the, the, the irony is, is that it's a lie. The world's, not watching, right. the world's not watching the church. No. That's why it's called the world, folks. Yes. <laughs> So the SBC hasn't even recognized the idiocy of their own mantra. The world isn't watching. The world doesn't. It, the world isn't watching the church because the world is not the church. The world doesn't want to be the church. Why would the world be watching the church when the world, by nature, want, as I said earlier, I articulated this earlier in, in our conversation, the world wants nothing to do. Why would the world be watching you? Right. Ask yourself that question. Why in the world? Would the world be watching the church? The world's not watching the church. Right. So that's, they really need to stop saying that because it is really completely nonsensical. It makes no sense whatsoever. The, the world is watching as if we're supposed to say, oop, the world is watching us. Let me straighten up. When, when the world is, it's the world. 
Right. The world is watching itself to get more of itself. The world wants That's to exactly the, right. the world wants to increase what they they want more of what they already have. They don't want what you have if what you have is the gospel. So we got to come back to the church too. Right. We just can't pick on the church on the world and say, well, the world was the world doesn't want what you have because the question becomes, well, church, what do you have? Is what you have really the biblical gospel or is it some sort of sociocultural substitute? Which is what we're talking about here. Which is what you brilliantly just walked us through, Omaha. And we need to be able to the see. I want to get ahead of myself. I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later on. But let, let, let me go ahead and pick up where you left off. In the book titled The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church, The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church, Dr. David F. Wells Senior Distinguished Research Professor of Theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, challenges evangelicalism with a disturbing analysis of its present condition, where Dr. F, Dr. Wells writes this in the book, The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church. Quote, what has changed most dramatically, I believe, in this last quarter of a century is that when I first arrived here in America, we were at the end of the post-war period when evangelical faith was being doctrinally framed, and today, for the most part, it is not. Now, let me pause right there. Dr. Wells says when he got here, when he first got here to America, evangelical faith was being doctrinally framed. But today, for the most part, it's not. That's no longer the case. Continuing to quote Dr. Wells, or at least not obviously so, what shaped the church then far more than it does now was theological conviction about its character and purpose. In one sense, this should not be surprising at all. Americans are nothing if not consumers, consumers of images, of relationships, and of things. But a church, if it is really true to itself, is never going to be a worldly success. Let me pause here. Did you hear that, listeners? Dr. Wells absolutely nails it here. Nailed it. Mm -hmm. If a church, if it is really true to itself, a church that is really true to itself is never going to be a worldly success. Dr. Wells goes on to say its gospel is stupid to the world. Mm -hmm. That's what I was just saying. Yes. The world is watching. What? No, it's not. Because as Dr. Wells says here, the gospel upon which the church is founded is stupid to the world. I love that word stupid. <laughs> the gospel is stupid to the world. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wells says many we know are called, but few are chosen. Much seed is sown, but only a little produces a rich harvest. And when Christ returns, is he going to find, is he going to find faith on the face of the earth? Is it right then, listen to this, is it right then for the church to prostrate itself obsequiously before the world in this sorry quest to become a going and successful enterprise? Is it right to allow sinners hostile in their nature both to God and his law to define how the church is going to do business. I think not unquote. 
That was Dr. David Wells bringing some smoke mm-hmm. from the book titled The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church. Now, Omaha, I concur completely with Dr. Wells, every single word of what I just read. But I, what I want our listeners to think about Omaha is something that stood out to me in the quote that I just cited from Dr. Wells. And that is this, that a church will never be a worldly success if it is true yes. to itself. That's good. The church That's will really see good. what you what you walked us through through Omaha really in your last three segments, bro. Mm-hmm. You've been arguing against you've been laying out a thesis Mm-hmm. For why the world, the church rather, and, and Protestant denominations should stop seeking to be worldly success, successes. Mm-hmm. Because a church, as Dr. Wells said, a church that is true to itself will never be a worldly success if it is true to itself. The same goes for denomination or church. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Please, if you listen to, if you don't remember anything else, Replace the world is watching. Replace replace that phrase with these words from Dr. Wells. The world is never going to be a worldly success if it is true to itself. But the question is this. What does it mean for a church or denomination to be true to itself? What does that mean? You see, Omaha, the problem as I see it within Protestant denominationalism today is that being true to itself means having unfeigned loyalty to a particular set of denominational tenets, even to the extent that with regard to some professing Christians who are denominationally affiliated, being a denominationalist means more to them than being a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what I see happening in the church today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People go, well, I'm Southern Baptist. I'm Presbyterian. I'm Methodist. I'm church of Christ. I'm AME, blah, 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 whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. See, that's what happens when you get caught up in denominationalism, where your identity becomes the denomination. First, good. first and that's foremost, really good. Yeah. You identify yourself as being affiliated with the denomination mm-hmm. rather than being affiliated to Jesus Christ, upon whom which uh, upon whom the church is built and your denomination right. purportedly has been founded. Right. It's that kind of inverted order of spiritual priorities that leads many denominations down the road to cultural compromise and capitulation, all in exchange for acceptance by the world. And that kind of thinking is the result of having convinced ourselves that God somehow needs our help to build his church. You said this earlier, Omaha. Mm-hmm. We think God needs our help. Yeah. But needless to say, he doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. In fact, to be even more specific, God doesn't need you or your denomination. God doesn't need, let me slow down and say it again. God doesn't need you or your denomination. You see, Omaha, you and I should never confuse God using us with God needing us. Right. That's good. That's what's happened in the church. It is. We think that because God uses us, that that means he needs us. But you should never confuse the fact that God uses you with God needing you. He's God. You're not. He was here first. You weren't. Right. Now, I say that in light of this observation by Dr. H. Richard Nyber, 
Dr. H. Richard Niebuhr, in a book titled The Social Sources of Denominationalism, The Social Sources of Denominationalism, says this, quote, Christendom has often achieved apparent success by ignoring the precepts of its founder, that founder being Jesus Christ. The church as an organization interested in self-preservation and in the gain of power has sometimes found the council of the cross quite as inexpedient as have national and economic groups. In dealing with such major social evils as war, slavery, and social inequality, it has discovered convenient ambiguities. Listen to that. It has discovered convenient ambiguities in the letter of the Gospels, which enabled it to violate their spirit and to ally itself with the prestige and power those evils had gained in their corporate organization. In adapting itself to the conditions of a civilization which its founder had bidden it to permeate with the spirit of divine love, it found that it was easier to give to Caesar the things belonging to Caesar if the examination of what might belong to God were not too closely pressed, unquote. He nails it there. Dr. Mm-hmm. H. Richard Niebuhr from the book, The Social Sources of Denominationalism. And what Dr. Niebuhr has basically described there is pragmatism, Omaha. It's mm-hmm. pragmatism that leads to capitulation. Yes. Every single time. That's why I said earlier, I used the, the um, uh, uh, word picture of churches and denominations folding like lawn chairs. You know how easy it is to fold a lawn chair, Omaha. Yep, it's yep. it's one move to fold it up, one move to fold it out. <laughs> There's no resistance, no resistance whatsoever. They're folding like lawn chairs. This kind of a uh, uh, today Omaha. There's a kind of denominational arrogance that permeates Protestant evangelicalism, so that denominational affiliation is exalted above the gospel. Now the Apostle Paul addresses that kind of ecclesiastical hubris. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 9, which I will read now from the non Armenian Standard Bible Translation. <laughs> That's been a minute. Come on, man. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 9. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet ready to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Let me pause here for a second at verse 3. Paul says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, I have to say that that's a sad commentary on the evangelical church today, Omaha, and that there is so much jealousy and strife within the church that we should be ashamed of ourselves. There is so much jealousy and strife going on. It's, huh. it's leading to people lying, the aspiration of lying to one another, lying on others. It's leading to, to a uh, covetousness of power and position because there is jealousy and strife in the church. 
But we don't want to acknowledge that. We want to present ourselves as being so clean when our hands and feet are dirty. There is dirtiest tar. And we need to acknowledge that. So when Paul talks about to the Corinthians church, we're no the Corinthian church. We're no different. There is jealousy and strife among us. Which demonstrates, as Paul says, how fleshly we are. We're walking like mere men. We're not walking like regenerate believers in Christ. Verse four, for when one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now let me pause here again there at verse seven. Omaha, just think for a second. How the evangelical church would be impacted for the better. If we were to just acknowledge what Paul says in verse seven and each one of us was to say, no, I'm not anything. I'm nothing. Yeah, that's good. I'm nothing. Yep. I'm just one whom God has used. What God, God causes the growth. I, instead of God getting out here boasting that you trained 1.1 million pastors. <laughs> oh, bro. <laughs> You nailed it. You nailed it. Paul says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. It's God who's causing the growth. Verse eight. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's Mm -hmm. field, God's building. Again, that was first Corinthians chapter three, verses one through nine. Now, the reason that passage in 1 Corinthians 3 is germane to our conversation about cultural denominationalism, Omaha, is because a denomination, or for that matter, a church that has sold itself out to the culture, has lost sight of why that denomination or church exists in the first place. And let me give you a hint. It doesn't exist to help you build or expand your platform or to aid you in making a name for yourself or to advance or advocate a political narrative or ideology that you happen to support or embrace. Mm -hmm. As the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, you're God's servants, you're workers in God's field and in God's building. Now, to help reinforce that truth. I want to quote from the book titled Reformed Ecclesiology in an Age of Denominationalism. Reformed Ecclesiology in an Age of Denominationalism by the early 20th century Dutch theologian, Dr. Philippus Jacobus Hodemaker, better known as That's a name right there. It is, man. That's a name. That's a name right there. You know, I had to practice that about 35 times. (laughs) The Dutch theologian Philippus Jacobus Hodemaker he may be better known to some of our listeners as P.J. Hodemaker. In that book, Reformed Ecclesiology in an Age of Denominationalism, Dr. Hodemaker writes this, quote, The church finds the ground of its existence not in the expression of the will of its members, but in the pleasure of its Lord and head, Jesus Christ. Stop, stop, stop. That's it right there. Right? That, that's so nice you got to say that twice. The church, the church finds the ground of its existence 
not in the expression of the will of its members, but in the pleasure of its Lord and head, Jesus Christ. It is he who has acquired a people from all languages, generations and nations, a people bought by his blood, called by his name, brought together by the covenant that God from of old concluded with the believers and their seed and by the power of that covenant incorporated into him and through whom God wishes to be the God of that people and to live among them. It is he who makes the people not only into citizens of his kingdom, but members of his body, a relation much closer than, than that between king and subject. One belongs to this people by birth and is baptized by one spirit into one body. That body is the church of Christ on earth. He gathers it by his word and spirit here, there, elsewhere, the whole world over and gives it a form through the offices he established. Now, let me pause right there. That little phrase right there where Dr. Holdemaker is saying that it is God who calls us and gives and establishes the church through the offices that he established. Goes back to what you were saying earlier for uh, uh, Omaha when you were walking us through the four stages of feminism. Yes. First, second, third, fourth wave feminism. Mm-hmm. And how the SBC, for example, now says, well, we need to take a year to, to sort of work through what the word pastor means. No, right. Dr. Holder, Holdermaker is clearing that up for you right here in one sentence. That'll take me five seconds to read. He says, no, it's God who gives the church form through the offices he established. Yes. And one of those offices that God has established is the office of pastor. In that, that that office, that ecclesiastical office is exclusive to men, to to spiritually qualified men, to go back to the quote I read from Dr. MacArthur earlier, where the church today is being led by spiritually unqualified men who are unable to lead. Holdermaker is saying, no, God has established these offices. Why do you need another year or two to work through the fog? There is no fog to be worked through. There is no smoke here. It's like you just said earlier, though, or at the top of the episode, what we're dealing here with are hardened, sinful hearts who don't want to obey God. Mm-hmm. That's fundamentally the problem. Holdermaker goes on to say, let me go back to the start of that previous sentence. That body is the church of Christ on earth. He, that is God, gathers it by his word and spirit here, there, elsewhere, the whole world over and gives it a form through the offices he established and the officers whom he called and gave for the perfecting of the saints, the work of service and building up of the body of Christ. And there, Dr. Holdermaker is quoting from Ephesians chapter four, verse 12, unquote. But you see, Omaha, none of what Dr. Holdermaker said means anything when your motive is to have God's glory all for yourself and for your denomination. Yes, yes, yes. None of that means anything. When your goal is to have all of God's shine, so to speak, for yourself. Yes, yes. And for your denomination. None of that means anything. It doesn't matter that God has established 
as Dr. Hodemaker says, he has formed his church through offices that he has established. Doesn't matter when you want to get all the shine for yourself. Right. When you want the glory for yourself that rightly belongs to only only to God, capitulating mm-hmm. to the culture is precisely what your denomination and church does. They fold like lawn chairs. Mm-hmm. And what does that capitulation look like? Well, it looks like this, for example. It looks like adopting Resolution 9, which subsequently opens the door to embracing critical race theory and otherworldly ideologies that promote ethnic partiality. It looks like evangelical feminism and egalitarianism and the ordination of women as, quote, pastors, unquote. It looks like accommodating the LGBTQ lifestyle under the guise of, quote, loving your neighbor, unquote. It looks like supporting Black Lives Matter, which is now being scrutinized and even sued for allegedly misusing tens of millions of dollars in contributions it had received over the years. And you and I know Omaha for a fact that there Mm -hmm. were platformed evangelical leaders who came out over the past three to five years advocating that the church support Black Lives Matter. Yep. And now those people are eerily silent now, not a peep out of them. Mm -mm. That capitulation also looks like selling out the pragmatism and winsomeness under the mantra that the world is watching. That's what that pragmatism looks like. Those are just some examples. But again, when your goal is to get all the shine for yourself, Mm -hmm. you don't care how God has established his church. You don't care. No, You're going to remake it into your own image. What you got, Omaha? Yeah, I I think, man, what what you laid out was just just incredibly sound. I, I love the last part with with regard to how the the capitulate what what the capitulation looks like. Um, and, and again, we, we've talked about it. We want our listeners to be able to be able to take a look and see in their own settings, their own surroundings, um, what the, what we're talking about, how this looks. If I'm, if I'm a part of a denomination that has, has abandoned its, its, its way, uh, and has begun to appeal, uh, to the culture, uh, and, and, and as a result, we've become cultural denomination, denominationalists, right. And, and, and beholden to cultural denominationalism, then how, how, how do I figure that out? How, do, how does that look? And I'm actually going to leap off of what you said, because those were fantastic uh, examples. I'm going to leap off of what you said and, and begin drilling down even more on what it looks like to capitulate to the culture. Now, what I'm about to say won't be popular, but again, you and I never set out to be oh, popular. Oh, well, you know, we don't care. From so. the beginning, right? <laughs> we, got a mug, we got a mug that says right. that we don't care. So uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's how that works. Uh, what, what does it look like to capitulate to culture? Well, it, it, it looks like the embrace of the normative principle of worship. Let me say that again. What capitulation looks like is an embrace of the normative principle of of worship. What do I mean? Well, on any given Sunday, you can witness the normative principle of worship at work. Most churches will hire a music guy. I put that in quotes, right? A music mm-hmm. guy. Now his qualifications are simple. He can sing, he can play an instrument, and he looks good doing it. Add add water and stir and we're <laughs> off to the races. <laughs> instant worship. Instant worship guy. Like instant right? grits. Yeah. Instant grits, instant worship guy. Now it's the music guy. It's the music guy's job to find the most popular songs for the praise band to play and for the singers 
to sing. And, and, and notice the, the issue is not, is not congregational singing. It's the praise mm-hmm. band can play mm-hmm. it and the, and the singers can sing it. Now, if the songs reference Jesus, now that's a plus. However, the music guy can also include songs if they reference the following. My importance to God, my desires, my hopes, my dreams, my fears, my frustrations, my walk, my journey, my trials, my challenges, and oh, my love for the Lord, because I know that's important too. Now, the, the idea... <laughs> The idea here with the normative principle is that if the Bible doesn't strictly forbid what we can sing about, well, then everything's fair game. The the modern evangelical is entrenched in the normative principle and, 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 and they would be, they would be, they would have a difficult time. Let me say that again. The, The modern evangelical who is entrenched in the normative principle of worship, they would be confused today if they read the story of Nadab and Abihu, right? Leviticus 10, Mm -hmm. 1 and 2. Uh, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to the Lord, worshiping God on, in an bro. unauthorized fashion. And, and what happened to them? Well, God struck them dead. Now, most modern evangelicals steeped in the, pragmat- in the pragmatic approaches of denominationalism, they would read that Old Testament story and think to themselves, well, you know, that, that's that mean old God of the Old Testament mm-hmm. who wouldn't really do such a thing mm-hmm. today. And, 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 and the God in the New Testament knows that our hearts are right and, and we're under grace, right? So, so we're, we're all good. That's kind of how they would think. Well, what, what does capitulation look like in the area of worship? It, it looks like a steady diet of a narcissistic, melodic, rhythmic ditty that is aimed to please the ear of those who attend your church. Whoa, whoa, hold it, hold it, hold it. Cue up the Hammond B3, because I'm going to make my guy say that again, man. That was so sweet. <laughs> that was fire, bro. Let us have that one more time, V, if you don't mind, bro. Yeah, the capitulation. What does capitulation in the area of worship look like? It looks like a steady diet of narcissistic, melodic, rhythmic ditties that are aimed to please man. the ears of those who attend Ooh-wee. your church. Bro. What, what does capitulation to the culture look like? Well, it looks like a steady diet of, of topical preaching. Let me, let me, let me step into, let me step into the, the, the preaching of, of, uh, of God's word on a Sunday morning. It looks like a steady diet of topical preaching where the quote unquote teaching pastor decides on a topic and then looks for scriptural support. But, but, but let me start here more long before the pastor ever gets to the church to preach his sermon. He begins his morning in the closet. Now, and by the closet, I don't mean his prayer closet. I, I mean his clothes closet. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> and once, once the pastor oh has selected his, his, his favorite Sunday morning muscle shirt and jeans, uh, because nothing says, I'm, uh, nothing says I'm common and connected with the people like a muscle shirt, he, he's then ready to head off to church with his sermon in hand. Now, concerned with... More concerned, rather, with, with showing off his biceps rather than rightly handling God's word, this immodestly dressed pastor is ready for action. Now, rather than stepping up to a pulpit, this pastor walks up to a light show with an ideally situated high top table and chair, the chair that he never uses, standing there for his Bible to sit on. That's what capitulation looks like. Capitulation to the, to, to the culture, it looks like a, a music light show. Uh, that would rival a rock concert designed for entertainment rather than worshiping the true and living God. 
It looks like people who are constantly showing up late and ready to leave early so they don't miss the ball game that's, that's playing or, or get ahead of the lunch line at, at their favorite Sunday eating spot. Uh, it looks like a lack of seriousness about what matters most, and that's the preaching of the Word of God. Now, before we go further, I want to I say I'm confident based upon what I just shared that, that there are going to be people who say, well, Virgil, you're being way too legalistic. So, so the question I pose is, am I? Legalism is the idea that we can somehow obtain justification before God through some form of works-based righteousness. And, and that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the vast majority of what passes as worship service, as a worship service rather, is nothing more than a pragmatic approach to something far less than worship. What we're creating in most instances is an experience, a quote unquote experience that we believe would be emotionally appealing to someone we hope to bring to church one day. And that is if we ever get the courage to tell them about Jesus. All of this is a capitulation to the culture. Is it denomination specific? Well, you'll need to examine the practice in your own area to determine if, if this is something that's rife within the entirety of your denomination. Here's what I do know. Scripture says this. This story of Luke chapter 2 kind of hit my mind as I was walking through this section of, of my notes. And it's the story of Jesus as a boy. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 50 from the elect standard version <laughs> of the Scripture. It says this, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and, and when they did, they did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you with great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, the question I have in light of that text of scripture is how, how, how seriously do we desire the simplicity of meeting with God on the Lord's day in the house of the Lord at the local church? How, how do we seriously desire to, to meet with God apart from all the fireworks, uh, the carnival barker antics, the smoke, the lights? Do you revere the word of God so much that, that anything less than the unadulterated word of God being preached actually tastes like the stomach-curling cotton candy overdose. Yeah, we can, we can, we can quickly identify the big issues uh, and, witness, and, and witness the cultural capitulation on the big issues. But long before we get there, I think it's imperative that we begin examining what we engage on a, on a weekly basis in our local church and ask us, are there some issues that need to be addressed? That's what I got. You know, V, you have asked some very penetrating questions there. You've done that before uh, in this episode, actually. And, and here you have a second round of very introspective, penetrating questions that we need to be honest with ourselves as we reflect on those questions and answer, answer them. And as I'm listening to you, I was drawn to Acts chapter 13, verse 42. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, 
Uh, Paul and Barnabas have been preaching the gospel. And verse 42 says, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that verse because in reflecting on what you just walked us through, um, and I asked myself this question first and foremost, um, is, is, is that our attitude uh, about hearing the word of God preached? Is, is that what, yes. what motivates us to be in the house of the Lord on Sundays and Wednesday? Because there's a, there's such a strong desire. There's such a strong thirst within your heart that mirrors the attitude of these hearers of Paul uh, and Barnabas so that they were begging them to come back, come back next Sabbath and continue preaching the word of God to us. Come back next Sunday. Come back. Is, is, is that how we think about the gospel? Or as you said, Virgil, do we have the opposite attitude to where when we're in the house of the Lord, hearing a sermon preached, but we can't wait to get out and go eat. We can't wait to get out and get down to the stadium because I got tickets to the game. You know, Mm -hmm. we can't wait to get out so we can go to the beach. You see? So I was immediately drawn to that verse. Again, it's Acts 13 verse 42. And I would commend Mm -hmm. that verse to our listeners for careful meditation and study against the backdrop of what you just shared with us, bro. That was very powerful. Good. You know, Omaha, in the book titled Reimagining Denominationalism, Reimagining Denominationalism, Dr. Russell E. Ritchie, Associate Dean and Professor of Church History at the Duke University School of Divinity, provides some background on the history of denominationalism, where he writes this, quote, the term denomination was used initially in the 17th and 18th centuries to identify religious postures that could be identified and hence named, such as Arminians. The theory derived from the ecclesiology of the Congregationalists or Independents, a view of the church as institutionalizing itself plurally and locally, but not in separation or schism, as distinct but not schismatic. Denominationalism, on the other hand, is a term of more recent vintage, considerably post-dating the phenomenon itself. It now functions to describe both denominational theory and the resultant condition or situation of institutionalized division. Are you hearing that, listeners? Denominationalism is the resultant condition or situation of institutionalized division. The accent, particularly in theological and ecumenical hands, tends to fall on the latter part of the definition, institutionalized division, and seemingly requires no further comment. One feature of denominational complexion has been its relationship with society, commerce, and the state. That is, the face, quote-unquote, that the denominations presented to the culture within which they functioned. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 
corporate or managerial organization swept virtually the entire Protestant mainstream, producing the structures of denominational organizations familiar today, unquote. Now, those words from Dr. Ritchie Omaha are important for us to consider because they show how the idea of denominations within Protestantism has morphed from one of, quote, identifying religious postures or doctrinal distinctives, whatever those distinctives might be, and you and I aren't here to argue about those, right. to one that is more reflective of a, quote, corporate and managerial type of denominational structure. That's the significance of my quoting those words from Dr. Russell E. That's Ritchie from the, book Reimagining, yeah, from the book Reimagining Denominationalism. That's the, that's the reason I pointed that out. Because Dr. Ritchie is, is showing us how the organic idea of denominations within Protestantism has morphed, okay? It's progressed from one that was the, where the fundamental idea was to identify distinct religious postures to one that is now today reflective of more of a corporate and managerial type of structure. In fact, Omaha, I would argue that it's the abandonment by some Protestant denominations today of their original doctrinal and ecclesiastical purpose and charter in exchange for a more corporate and managerial, one might even say secular or temporal model that has resulted in those denominations losing their way and becoming more ecumenical and pluralistic as opposed to remaining true to their foundational biblical mandate, which regardless of the difference or distinctions in denominational tenets and precepts is to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ of all the nations. That's Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. That is your fundamental charter right there, regardless of what your denomination is and what it subscribes to. That applies across denominational lines, Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. When a denomination when a denomination abandons its gospel-centered mandate of making disciples of Jesus Christ, it ends up looking nothing like what it professes itself to be. Consequently, instead of focusing on theological matters, those denominations become political, engaging more in matters of the world than matters of the soul and of the temporal rather than the eternal. Yeah. Now, that's not to suggest that matters of the world are of no significance or importance to the church or to us as Christians, but they are not That's to a great point. Yeah. They're not to be treated as primary concerns. That's the point I'm making. That's a great point. That's a great point because that, that that's, I think that's the point at which you begin to witness denominational ism with, with organizations like the, the ERLC and, 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 exactly. the, and the funding that, that, that push into a, political direction uh, rather than one focused on the transformative work of gospel proclamation. Exactly right, Omaha. And and based on what you just said, I'm going to repeat the point I just made because we know that there are people who listen to the Just Thinking podcast who are our haters and they're going to hear me say something that I didn't say. So I'm going to repeat this one more time. As we used to say back in the day, I'm going to repeat this one more again. That is not to suggest, I am not suggesting that matters of the world are of no significance or importance to the church or to us as individual Christians. 
I'm simply saying that those matters of the world are not to be treated as primary concerns. After all, it was Christ himself who posed one of the most profound rhetorical questions in all of scripture is found in Mark chapter eight, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the world, the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, in light of that, I appreciate how J.I. Packer puts it in his classic book titled Knowing God, where he says this quote from current Christian publications, You might think that the most vital issue for any real or would-be Christian in the world today is church union or social witness or dialogues with other Christians and other faiths or refuting this or that ism or developing a Christian philosophy and culture or what have you. But our line of study makes the present-day concentration on those things look like a gigantic conspiracy of misdirection. Of course, it is not that. The issues themselves are real and must be dealt with in their place. But it is tragic that in paying attention to them, so many in our days seem to have been distracted from what was, is, and always will be the true priority for every human being. That is learning to know God in Christ, unquote. You see, Omaha, cultural denominationalism happens when you think you're in this world to make friends with the world. It happens when you see your denomination and the churches that comprise it as as a sociocultural big tent into which everyone, regardless of the condition of their heart, can both come as they are and remain as they are. It's why you have so-called churches, and I have churches in air quotes. It's why you have so-called churches today flying rainbow flags outside their buildings and promoting open-ended inclusive language on their marquees, welcoming everyone and anyone into their churches under the banner that God loves you. As if joining a local church were tantamount to signing up for a Sam's Club or a Costco membership. That's good, man. That's good. That's the reality, man. Just that's let, what. That's just what let we, anybody. That's how in. we act. Anybody in? Yeah. You don't need you to be. Pay, you don't pay for the, Yeah. You don't need to be you, regenerate. If you, yeah. If you can pay for the membership, you're good. Just pay the membership fee. It's it's, it's really it's really been reduced to that. It's tantamount to signing up for a Sam's Club or a Costco membership. Mm-hmm. But see, here's the thing: you don't join the church. God joins you to the church, bro. Bro, so nice. That has to be said twice. That is good. You do not join the church. God joins you to the church. Now, it's on that note that I want to quote from theologian Dr. John Frame, who, by the way, Dr. Frame is a staunch opponent of the idea of denominations. Dr. Frame says this in his Systematic theology, quote, the church has the authority to say who belongs to the covenant and who does not. It has the power to admit people to the fellowship and to cast them out. We rarely hear of excommunication today 
except in the Roman Catholic Church. People usually think that excommunication is an ancient, outmoded practice and very cruel. If the church represents the love of Christ, people ask, how can it throw anybody out? But discipline is biblical. It can be more or less serious from excommunication at one extreme to admonition or rebuke for lesser sins. But every church ought to practice it, unquote. That was Dr. John Frame from his systematic theology. Listen also to what the 17th century Puritan theologian Thomas Goodwin says about that, that issue. Quote, as the church is God's house. Let me stop right there. Again, Goodwin is already in only those six words. Those first six words has identified what the problem is within evangelicalism today. Yes. You talked earlier, Omaha, about how casually we just walk into God, walk into God's house. We just casually walk in. Mm-hmm. We just we don't regard the presence. We, we don't regard the reality of in whose presence we are when we step into that building. Yeah. What we've done is forgotten what Thomas Goodwin is saying here. We've forgotten that the church is God's house. Mm-hmm. That's God's house. Goodwin says, as the church is God's house, he has not left it unto man to frame his building to what proportions he pleases. Christ's body instituted, that is, the church, is to have set limits of it. And as the natural body, if it has all the parts that can have communion in the same common acts of nature together, though it be never so small, is a perfect body so it has also a prescription of bigness and bounds are set to it, both for parts and for proportion of stature, which none should exceed, Goodwin said. Thus Christ has also constituted his body, the church, in a due measure and proportion, unquote. Well, Goodwin there is arguing, is that, as he said, God's church has set limits. Bounds are set. You don't just let anyone in. This isn't, as I said in one of our previous episodes, the church is not the Fred Flintstone Water Buffalo Club. Yeah. You don't just let anybody in, pay a membership fee, sign a card, and you're in. So no, the church is not an open-ended big tent so as to allow everyone into it as if it were an indiscriminate social club. That's nothing but moralistic pragmatism. To the contrary, in fact, the church is discriminatory by divine design. Bro, what you, listen, there was something, there was, I I can't remember where we were um, when you were, you were giving a talk or I think we were sharing a platform and you had said something about the discriminatory nature of either the church or, or something. And, and, and it hit like a ton of bricks. I think it was, you know, and, and this is the same, this is the same idea uh, given to, to, to the issue of the going from the big tent to what the church actually is by divine design, which is a, a discriminatory uh, 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 organization, right? Right. Uh, right. For, for lack, for lack of a better word, right. for lack of a better word. Yeah. It is discriminatory. The church mm-hmm. is discriminatory by divine design. 
Now, I say that, I want our listeners to, to listen closely see so what you hear that in the current milieu in which we live today, you hear that word discriminatory and people just go off thinking all kinds of stuff. Right. But see, not all discrimination is bad. Not all discrimination is bad. So when I say the church is discriminatory by divine design, I say that in the context of what the Apostle John writes in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, which says this, but as many as received him, See, that's discriminatory right there. I'll stop right there. Right. But as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Mm-hmm. See, that's what I mean by discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Meaning, those who have received Christ, by, but as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. That means the inference there is that those to those who have not received him, he has not given them that right. That's where the discrimination comes in. I hope y'all are understanding me here. Yes. John 1, 12 and 13, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right. Now, if you had to be given the right to become children of a child of God, that means you didn't, you weren't a child of God. Prior to that, prior to having been given that right by faith, by having come to faith by God's monitors to work in your heart, coming to faith in Christ. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Discriminatory again, even to those who believe. That's why I've said many, many times the church is comprised of believers. There's not a single unbeliever in God's church. I hope y'all are following me here. (laughs) So if your idea of church is just that local building that you attend, that you drive up to every Sunday, I'm not talking about that. Right. I'm not talking about a church. I'm talking about the church. There is not a single unbeliever in God's church. Now there may be unbelievers in your local church, but the divinely designed, universal, invisible church, there's not a single unbeliever in it. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's two verses. That's a two verse apologetic that supports the idea of divine discrimination from an ecclesiastical standpoint. So I hope our listeners are clear in what I meant by that statement that the church is discriminatory by divine design. I say that on the basis of John 1, 12 and 13. Evangelical denominations are not to be engaged in the business of making the gospel palatable to a world that wants nothing to do with the gospel to begin with. It's an utter absurdity to think that a culture which is depraved by nature can somehow change their nature so that it desires the things of God. That's ridiculous. As the mid 20th century Dutch Calvinist Baron class Kuiper, BK Kuiper said, quote, so great is the depravity of unregenerate man that although there is nothing that he needs more than the gospel, there is nothing he desires less. 
Yeah. Unquote. Did y'all hear that? This is a one sentence refutation of pragmatism. Yes. And cultural capitulation. Yes. Kuiper says so great is the depravity of unregenerate man that although there is nothing that he needs more than the gospel, there is nothing he desires less. That's what I said earlier. The world ain't watching you. <laughs> SBC, mm-hmm. especially I'm pointing them out because that's where that line originated from. The world ain't watching you. Mm-hmm. The world is watching the world. We seem to have forgotten Omaha that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. That's James 4, 4. Cultural denominationalism is wholly antithetical to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, where he asks these rhetorical questions. What fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has a believer in common with an unbeliever? See, it's on, that, it's on the basis of that verse, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, that I said earlier, Omaha, the, 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 we got denominations and churches today who believe that you can bring the world, unbelievers, to the light by turning off the light. It, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. But that verse in 2 Corinthians 6, those verses provide, in my opinion, an excellent and biblical, obviously, definition of what cultural denominationalism is at its most fundamental level. Cultural cultural denominationalism at its fundamental level is fellowship with the darkness. That's my definition. It's fellowship with the darkness. That's precisely what cultural denominationalism is at its most fundamental level. By the way, Omaha, there's a reason the Apostle James begins the aforementioned verse in James 4.4 with the accusative phrase, you adulteresses. Yeah. It's because the church is the bride of Jesus Christ, a reality that we take far too lightly in the church today, by the way, and to pursue or to seek after cultural admiration is the equivalent of spiritual adultery. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, where he says this. He says, for I am jealous for you, with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Let me stop right there. Mm-hmm. See, one reason the evangelical church and some denomination can just hold their arms open wide is that they've lost any semblance of the idea that Christ demands his church to be pure. But no, no just let, let's let everyone in. Yeah, we can, we can uh, ordain practicing homosexuals. No problem. Why? Because well, because God loves everybody. You're welcome here. Yeah, God loves you too. But Paul says no. He says, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, here we go, verse, yep. taking us back to Genesis yep. 3. Yep. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, unquote. Now, to be betrothed to Christ is to be wholly devoted only to him. The word betrothed in the aforementioned verse is the Greek verb harmozo, harmozo, H-A-R-M-O-Z-O, from where we get our English word harmony. 
The word harmozo translates to mean to fit or join together, to join to oneself so as to be in perfect unity, harmony, and agreement with. The same idea is captured in Genesis 2.24, verge, where we have the first marriage, yes. and where God says that a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's that same harmozo, that same har- idea of harmony that's, that's captured. That's, that, go ahead, that's go ahead. Absolutely be- that's absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And, and again, when, when, when all this, the smoke, the mirrors, the, 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 you know, the chaos of what we try to do in, in our services to appeal to God-haters, uh, when all of that is stripped back and you're able to peer into the pages of scripture and see the beauty of the relationship that God desires uh, with his people, um, that should, that should be sufficient. That should be enough. That should be enough to, 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 to draw the transformed heart uh, to, 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 to Christ. Absolutely. It should be enough, but unfortunately it's not. It's not. You're right. You nailed it, bro. It should be enough. Yep. Should be sufficient, but nope. Nope. We got to help God out. The point I'm making here in exegeting that previous passage there in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 2 and 3. The point I'm driving at here, Omaha, is that Christ desires a pure church. We have to remember that. People say, well, that's not loving. That's not loving. Like I said, that, what, what, where'd you get the idea that, certain, that the church is some sort of social club? Well, you just let everybody in. Christ's church, which is called to be holy, cannot mix with an unholy and ungodly culture. It cannot. It's light and darkness. John MacArthur says this in an article published in the November 2020 edition of Table Talk magazine. The article's titled In the World But Unlike the World. MacArthur says this, quote, The New Testament is full of texts that contrasts the church with the world in the starkest possible terms. No wonder these are rival domains locked in irreconcilable opposition at war with one another for mastery of human souls. Christ is head of the church. That's Ephesians 5:23, and it confesses him as its Lord, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. First John 5:19. The church has no calling to try to broker a truce with the world. Jesus said believers can expect no more friendly reception from the unbelieving world than he received. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, he said. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, verses 18 and 19, unquote. You see, every truly biblical church, and by association, every truly biblical denomination is married to Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, and likewise is the head of every denomination that is associated with his church. Therefore, our only loyalty, whether ecclesiastically or denominationally, is to him and to him alone. Consider that against the backdrop of these words from the 19th century Scottish 
Presbyterian theologian James Bannerman, who in his seminal work titled The Church of Christ, said this, quote, In making the church the depository among men of that word which he at first inspired and still continues to bless, and of those ordinances which he originally appointed and still vouchsafes to sanctify to the good of his people, Christ has established on the earth an outward and visible witness to himself of an enduring and perpetual kind, the utterances of which in the hearing of the world can neither be lost or nullified. On the one hand, the testimony of the church on behalf of Christ may be disregarded or rejected, and men may continue in their unbelief, but its voice, if not heard to save, is sufficiently heard to justify the condemnation of those who have disbelieved it. On the other hand, those who have been led by it to turn to a savior and have received the testimony that it bears to him become in a manner more emphatic still the living evidences that the witness of the church is both real and true. In either case, the church is along with the spirit, the standing and perpetual witness on the earth on behalf of a savior. Unquote. Now, along the same lines of thought as James Bannerman, the Reverend G. Van Reenen in his book on the Heidelberg Catechism says this, quote, It is the duty of the church and of every member thereof to be the salt of the earth. Salt both flavors and preserves. Thus the church should salt the tasteless life of the world to give it fragrance and flavor. And thus the church preserves the world from destruction. Therefore, in his condescending goodness, the Lord gave his church as a lump of salt and his people as grains of salt. The value of a few of those grains of salt we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. If there had been 10 of those grains, God would not have destroyed those cities because of one grain of that precious salt. God blesses a whole family, a business, a town, yea, a whole nation. Rulers and magistrates should consider God's people as being very valuable, worth more than jewels and gold, unquote. Listen, listen, if your denomination is engaged in any enterprise other than that of being an outward, visible and perpetual witness on the earth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it shall no longer regard itself as a legitimately biblical or ecclesiastical domination denomination, because that's not what it is. That's good. That's good. What you got Omaha? No, I think, man, that, that, that's, that's solid and sound. Now, I have to, I have to admit something, man. I have to, I have to confess something here, bro. So I, I, I there were, two, I've added, you see me over here writing. I had, had to add another word to look up for later. The first one you hit me with was way back when you quoted from David Wells. It was, ob, what is it? Ob, Obsequious. Ob, obsequious. I had to look that one up, Doc. <laughs> I said, what in the world? It's, it's, 
It's obedient or attentive to an excessive or servile degree. Mm-hmm. And then, then the last word you hit me, you hit us with was the bannerman with vouch safe. Right. I, I said, look at that. That's a new one. Yeah. I, we definitely need. I got to figure out a place to use that at some point since I'm since I'm starting to write articles. I that's gotta, one of the gotta, that's one of the cool things about the Just Thinking podcast, bro. We don't dumb down anything. No, man. Vouchsafe. That, that is to yeah. give or grant something to someone yeah. in a gracious manner. That yeah. I, that that was good. Yeah. I thought that's some that's some good stuff, man, right there. Now, the whole section that you just walked us through was was again brilliantly walked out and 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 really helps I think us to understand where we I mean we're, we're beginning to kind of kind of land the plane. Uh, on this particular issue, I think it's important for our listeners to to note that was a good section for people to take the time uh, to walk back through regarding again cultural denominationalism. Let me get let me get some thoughts here, and this is something that ha- that now as as I get ready to say this, we've now said you and I combined have said over and over and over again. So I'm I'm repeating myself, but at the same time I recognize that for the purpose of learning and, and keeping things in fresh in the mind, it is good to, to, to remind people to repeat things from time to time. So here's, here's, here's how I'll open my notes. I'll say this denominationalism begins, and this is all of what you said Mm -hmm. in the last section. Denominationalism begins when you think that the church is yours to do with as you please, Mm -hmm. rather than realizing you are the church and you must please God Mm -hmm. and not yourself. I think those that, that's that's incredibly important. As a reminder, I'll also appeal uh, to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in Chapter Seven, uh, which talks about the covenants of God. Paragraph one through three, read this way. And I, I want I want our folks to sit back and, and listen as I read this. All of what uh, what you're hearing from the London Baptist Confession and those who who, who came together to put uh, these words uh, to paper and 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 unpack. Uh, what we believe, what 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 those of us who hold to this confession of faith actually believe, they are pulling from the text of Scripture to make these statements. So these are not these are not statements that are kind of random. I feel like this, and I'm going to write this down. These these statements are are coalesced, are combined on the basis of what Scripture says about God's covenants, in particular, and and paragraphs one through three. I, I read them in light of the fact that it's important for us to understand who we are. And what God has done, rather than rather than thinking about, well, God should do this for me, or God should, or or the church should be. You, you hear that kind of language. I, I wish the church would do this for me. I, I wish our church had this. I wish our church would do this. Well, the church isn't about you. It is not about you. Uh, the church is about God and, and having a clear understanding. I, I, I'll I'll take this I'll take this rabbit trail here and say this. One of the one of the teaching tools that was incredibly helpful for me, and, and, and I know when I say this, you'll you'll concur with this, Daryl. One of the teaching tools that was incredibly helpful for me uh, in, in my in my walk with Christ and my understanding of God's goodness of grace uh, and understanding of, of of my need for ongoing sanctification uh, was to go back and examine uh, uh, a book by um, uh, by. Uh, Oh gosh, I'm 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 losing his name. R.C. Sproul. Okay, by, by doctor by doctor R.C. Sproul, the holiness of God. Oh man, man, bro, I I remember. In fact, I may have to pick it back up now that I've, I've reminded myself. I remember, gosh, when I came into the doctrines of grace, I remember almost annually for about three to five years, 
revisiting that particular book. And, and the reason for that was because I felt like it was, it was incredibly helpful in, in reminding me and realigning me uh, as to what was important. Uh, that what's important is God. Right. Um, and, and, and what's important is my life conforming to the image of his son. Yes. We, 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 we know that, 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 uh, that we're told based upon scripture to be holy as I am holy. Right. Right. The only way to do that is for us to peer into the pages of Scripture. And, and, and when Scripture is, is convoluted with the, with the ways of the world, with the, with the chaos of culture, and, and all that is drawn into the church, we have a more difficult time peering into the purity that is, that is Christ himself. And so, again, say, say all that to say, I, 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 as I thought about this section, I wanted to go back and look at the covenant that God made with us. Uh, and and I, I thought that the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith was helpful for us to do that. So let me read this. It says this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their savior, yet they would never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by the way of covenant. Moreover, Man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are, are uh, ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them the, the, the willing and able and uh, to make them rather willing and able to believe. Let me read that. Let me read that section one more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. I mean, the, the willingness you said you've been saying this now for the last two sections, the willingness and ability to believe was not even our own. Those even are a gift from the work of God himself. So for us to enter the doors of the church, for us to enter the body of Christ, demanding, commanding or reordering or restructuring anything is absolutely unthinkable. Given what God has done absolutely, on our behalf. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Let, let me continue walking through this. It says this, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in the eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that have ever were that, that, that were ever saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of the acceptance of God upon those terms which Adam stood in his state of innocency. You've been saying that the entire time. I mean, the whole section that you just unpacked uh, made very clear for us that we would be incapable of accepting the grace of God on terms that, that would be acceptable to him apart from his divine intervention. 
Now, the, the reason why I take the time, and again, that was the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter seven, God's covenants, uh, paragraphs one through three that I just read. Again, why, why did I take us through the time to read that? I think if we can remember that the covenant that we enjoy is not our covenant, it's God's covenant Man, come on, aimed at us. And it is not based upon our goodness and grace, but upon his goodness and grace aimed toward us through Christ. That and that alone is what gives us the access or the acceptance into the church. And perhaps we'll never fall into the hope would be based upon, again, the, the, the time that we've spent in this episode. Our hope would be that you would never fall into uh, cultural denominationalism or that if you examine your life and recognize, man, I, I'm, I'm kind of there, uh, that you would repent immediately and, and, and begin walking back into the open arms of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as a result of, again, the good news of the gospel. V, you know, as I listened to you in that segment, uh, walk us through what you just did, I felt a, a burden in my heart for what is really a sad uh, commentary on the church today. And that sad commentary is that kind of like along the lines of what I said earlier, that we have churches today who are filled with people that don't believe the gospel. They don't believe mm-hmm. the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. An outgrowth of that is that we have people today who are uh, in the church as leaders um, who are operating within the church uh, with a very uh, temporal paradigm that ignores the fact that souls are at stake here. Mm -hmm. We have souls are at stake. Um, We're talking about issues of eternal significance. Uh, the church exists to proclaim the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I say saving, I mean uh, many things. But among those many things, one of the most important aspects of that is that you can have forgiveness of your sins. You can have forgiveness of your sins by placing your faith in the work of Christ, his propitiatory substitutionary atoning death on the cross in your place. So that among the benefits of having your, your sins forgiven, you can live eternally with him in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Now, along with that, you're a much better evangelist than I am. So, I may be butchering this, but you set me straight, V. Mm -hmm. Along with that is the idea and what cultural denominationalism, uh, one of the things that cultural denominationalism does, it renders us fearful of saying this truth to people that apart from that faith in Christ, if you die not believing in him, not believing in the work he performed in his life, death, burial, resurrection Mm -hmm. for the forgiveness of your sins, you will go to hell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you here for this reason. And that is whenever gospel, whenever the gospel is given at the end of a sermon, at the end of a service, it is rare. It is rare for the preacher to append on the end of the sentence, the words you just said. 
you know, they, they want to tell you about the wonderful life and man, it'll be yeah. great and, and, you know, eternal life, blah, 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 blah. But they don't tell you what happens if you, if you neglect to, 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 to uh, reach, reach toward uh, Christ with, with the saving grace that's being offered, right? The, the, the alternative is you stand condemned already uh, now in this life and in the next uh, as a result of, of your rejecting the free gift of Jesus Christ that will land you in a place called hell for eternity. People are afraid, fearful to say that. And again, so what you see in with, with cultural denominationalism is an approach to gospel proclamation that absolutely avoids altogether absolutely. any any conversation about the bad news. Absolutely. And I want to point to two, two verses in the New Testament because you talked about earlier, the kind of people who say, well, that was the Old Testament. You know, God was vengeful, vindictive. <laughs> right. He was judgmental. Right. He was wrathful, blah, blah, blah. Well, give me a, let me give you a couple yeah. verses from the New Testament. Okay. Let's see you refute these. John chapter three, verse 36 in the NASB. He who believes, this really summarizes a version of what you just said. He who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Mm-hmm. Now, as to the second part of that verse, the tense, the wrath of God abides is a present tense verb. The, for the unbeliever, the wrath of God abides on you right now. Right now. That's right. Now, you may be doing very well from a worldly standpoint. You may be healthy. Mm-hmm. You may be um you know, have a good career, successful career, your uh, wonderful marriage and family, your, 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 your children are wonderful. Uh, but again, that's no indication that you're not under the wrath of God if you're an unbeliever. Because we know from Scripture, right, that the kindness of God is to lead you to repentance. Yes. Let me take you to another verse. Second Thessalonians 1. Second Thessalonians 1, and I'm going to take you to Verse seven, verse eight. This is New Testament Jesus right here, of which Paul is speaking. Okay, yeah. this is the new same same Jesus same, same Jesus of the Old Testament. Same, but I, I get I get what you same, same, same Jesus, <laughs> same God in the Old Testament, in the New right, Testament. Right, right, right. Second Thessalonians right. one verse eight. This is this is Paul speaking of Jesus. Verse eight, verses eight and nine, eight nine and ten. Dealing out, this is how Jesus is going to deal with unbelievers. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That that connects directly back to John 3.36. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So if you want to know, mm-hmm. here's a good succinct definition of hell. Hell is second Corinthians one nine. It is away from the being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's a good biblical definition of hell right there. Yes, yes, yes. Suffering the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, mm-hmm. all that was an aside, right? To what you just walked <laughs> us through verge. Yeah. But as we, as we head toward the close yeah. 
of this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, Omaha, I want to again quote from the book, The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church, in which Dr. David F. Wells says this, quote, modernity, or as Dr. R. Albert Moeller likes to say, modernity, 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 modernity has rearranged our appetites. Man, let me just stop right here. Verge, we have dropped so many quotes of substance on this episode that when you read the first sentence, you can stop right there. (laughs) You got to stop. Yeah, yeah, you got to (laughs) stop. Right. This is another one. This is another one. Dr. David Wells says, modernity has rearranged our appetites. Because of our therapeutic culture, we favor relational matters over those that are moral. The consequences of which is that God's holiness is pushed into the background and his love is brought into the foreground. V, I got to I got to get some ham in here, bro. We this is Come on, man. This is, Come on, this man. Is this, I got to I got to give Dr. Wells you got to. some hammer yeah. right we here. Got, we got to we we tune him up, man. Does this sentence not summarize everything we've been talking about? She said absolutely it does. Because of our therapeutic culture, this is where the sentimentalism comes in. This is where the emotionalism comes in. The pragmatism, the pragmatism, the nuance, the winsomeness, people calling you out for your tone, the tone police coming in, (laughs) handing out tickets. This is exactly what Dr. Wells is talking about. Therapeutic culture. Therapeutic culture. Now we have a therapeutic church. We have a therapeutic church. Because of our therapeutic culture, Wells says, we favor relational matters over those that are moral. See, now what we see evidence of that verge by the fact that tone equals truth. Yes, that's good. You, yes. have, to say, you have to say the truth in the right tone in order for the truth to really be the truth. Right. Like I said in one of our episodes, you know, in Luke chapter 3 where... Jesus is being tempted of the devil. You got people probably accusing Jesus of not being nice enough in his rebuke of the devil in those three temptations. Well, Jesus, you could have, you could have, you could have said that a lot with a night, a little, a little better tone. Right. I mean, I know he's the devil, but <laughs> man, yep. let me get back on this quote. Modernity has rearranged our appetites because of our therapeutic culture. We favor relational matters over those that are moral. The consequences of which is that God's holiness is pushed into the background and his love is brought into the foreground. Mysticism. Matter of fact, verse, can I pause one more time, bro? I'm sorry. Nope. Nope. Don't be. But when, when Wells talks about how God's holiness is pushed into the background and his love is brought into the foreground, that's exactly what I'm going to be talking about in the conference in DC in September. Yes. That's exactly what I'm going to be talking about. The title of my message is Theistic Amorism. And I'm going to be talking about this very point that Wells is mentioning here, how we have a tendency to push God's holiness or certain other attributes of his into the background and bring only that one attribute, the attribute of his love, into the foreground. So I'm going to be talking about that. So for those of you who can make that conference, just thinking about the Bible, September 15th through 17th, in Washington, D.C. at Emmanuel Bible Church, I'm going to be talking about this very thing. 
But continuing with Dr. David Wells's quote, he says, mysticism then flourishes and cognitive conviction retreats. Self-surrender is devalued and self-fulfillment is prized. Preoccupation with character fades and fascination with personality and self-image advances. The God in whom we love has replaced, I'm sorry, the God in whom love has replaced wrath produces a Christianity that is appealing for its civility, but one that has no serious word for a world which is racked by evil. Wow. Mm. It is because God now rests so inconsequentially upon the church that the church is free to plot to devise its success in its own way. That is why so many of our forebearers in the faith would scarcely even recognize us as their children today. Unquote. Again, that was Dr. David Wells bringing fire from the book yes. titled The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church. Thoughts on that, Omaha? As outstanding section. I mean, like you said, that one, that one paragraph of a quote uh, provided so many bite-sized pieces that you could you could chew on for quite some time. You could you could take just sections of that based upon where, where I know you're going to go in, in your in your talk in September and just really, uh, really drive home, uh, man, the, the importance of, of of examining all every attribute of God, not based upon how we want to how we want to uh, present him uh, to to the culture that we think uh, that, that we think desires him when they actually they hate him. They hate him. Um, but 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 also uh, its benefit to ourselves. What I mean is this: I, I was thinking about when you talked about how we how we push the holiness of God. We push it in the background. Earlier, I'd mentioned R. the book R. C. Sproul's "The Holiness of God," and I thought about about how examining the attribute of the holiness of God, the th- the thrice holy God that we that we worship, examining that, how beneficial that is uh, to to our own um, sanctification. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, when 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 yeah. we when 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 we compartmentalize God to only the attributes that we think uh, that 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 are important, um, we miss the fullness of God, which is which for for us is to be enjoyed forever. We're to enjoy mm-hmm. God and and mm-hmm. and worship Him forever, mm-hmm. and so we're, we're missing aspects of that. And again, cultural denominationalism lends itself to uh, in the appeal of the world. And, and as a result, we, we want to, we want to hide particularly God's holiness mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. world because with his holiness, uh, comes his judgment, mm-hmm. comes his justice. Yep. Um, and, and that's even for a purpose. It's for the purpose of recognizing, uh, our, our innate, our inability, our deadness in our sin and trespasses, uh, so that awakened by the spirit, we come alive to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But anyway, I, I, I can go on and on about that. Let me, let me get to my notes. Let me say this. Semper Reformanda is the charge that, that comes out of the Reformation. Semper Reformanda, which, which, which is always reforming, right? Right. It was it was Josh Bice uh, in his address to the 2020 National G3 Conference. He said this, quote, the church is not called to be an ever changing or seeking to become culture. It's not. Let me let me start that again. Quote, the church is not called to be ever changing or seeking to become culturally relevant. Cultural relevance makes the church biblically irrelevant. 
So, so here, here, what he's saying, mm-hmm. he's saying, if you pursue cultural relevance, what you'll innately do just by, just by the nature of your desire to become culturally relevant, you will become a biblically irrelevant church. He says this quote, the call of the Christian and the church of Jesus is to be consistently reforming, uh, and developing uh, a way to combat the deforming effects of the culture, end quote. In an article titled Always Reforming, uh, Josh would write this, quote, what, what always reforming does not mean is this. It is, first of all, it is a statement rooted in a historical movement, indeed a historical revival known as the Protestant Reformation. The idea is that God's people not only need to be capital R reformed, But we need to be continually reforming Mm -hmm. the world, the flesh and the devil are consistently deforming the Christian. Therefore, the phrase Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, the church reformed, always reforming. That became the staple statement long before bumper stickers and T-shirts existed. Mm -hmm. The church is to be always moving, but moving in the right direction back to Scripture uh, I, 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 I'm going to stop here and just say, I, I think, I think this quote from Josh nails the, 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 the just nails it just right on the head. And the reason I say that uh, is because when, when we look at where we are as a church who desires a, to appeal to culture and then denominations that enforce that appeal, we actually lose all the vibrance, all the vigor, all the, all the, all the power that God intended. And, and if we're going to reform, how should we be reforming? We should be reforming to look like the culture. We should be reforming and pointing the church back into the direction of the scripture. It's, it's like the new, it's like the new mantra is Semper Deconstructor. <laughs> right. Because right. You, you've gone from, yeah. from Semper Reformanda to Semper Deconstructor. So they've, what they've done right. is they've, they've, uh, they've, uh, they, they, they've sort of uh, changed the, the construct of reformation to mm-hmm. uh, reconstruction is is yeah. you, you go yes. from reformation to reconstruction via deconstruction. But to your yes. point, yes. to your point, reformation always begins with scripture. It always begins yes. with scripture and tightening up our uh, doctrines, tidying, tidying, tidy, tidying up our theology, tidying, tidying up everything that it means to be a Christian along mm-hmm. the lines of what scripture says. But the contemporary church today has changed that mantra. It's it, it, it's yeah. for reconstruction via right. deconstruction, not reformation. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, the call of the Christian. Continue to quote from Josh's article. The call of the Christian and the Church of Jesus is to be consistently reforming from the deforming effects of the church. That's exactly what you just said. The the reconstructing based upon a, a deforming right. Process is actually that's actually what's happening. Uh, The Bible was I love what he says here. The Bible was unleashed in the pulpit. Uh, And and when it is, it has set the world on fire with the gospel of truth. The result was perhaps the greatest revival and awakening since since Pentecost. When the word of God is preached with power and calls into question the state-sponsored religion of the day, the results are the results are both praise of God and his people and persecution of the church by culture. Wow. Listen to that. Wow. However, persecution only fulfills Jesus's word, which serves as a means of church growth that destroys the efforts of the God haters. So what's going to create church growth? 
it, it ain't your it ain't your shiny bells and whistles. It, it's not it's not the fog machine. It, it's not it's not the hip hop music that opens the the the, the session. Mm-hmm. What's going to grow the church? Mm-hmm. It's actually going to be persecution, mm-hmm. which fulfills the words of, of Christ mm-hmm. as a means of church growth mm-hmm. that, that, that destroy the efforts of the God haters. We will destroy the work of the enemy as we grow. And we're going to grow as a result of receiving persecution. Mm-hmm. And we're going to receive persecution as a result of, 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 the, of pointing ourselves to the word of God. It says, he says this, this must be something that we remember as we live in a day where America seems poised to embrace a form of national, and, and I added the word secularist, religion uh, that will certainly unleash persecution uh, on the church in America, end quote. Now, I think Josh is absolutely right. I think he's right about our need to always be reforming. I think he's right about our need. Uh, he's right about the joy that will result uh, from us being faithful to the text of scripture and fearful of God rather than fearful of men. I think he's right about the persecution that will result. And here's the thing. Here's the thing, Daryl, with regard to the issue of persecution. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is the issue of persecution on the part of denominations that causes them to run scared. Whoa, whoa. Now, oh, wait, hold it. Got to cue up my Hammond B3 one more game, bro, for that. Because, again, man, that's another truth that we need to hear, but that we don't want to hear. We Absolutely. don't want to hear it. Say that one more time, Absolutely. Omaha. Absolutely. It, it is the threat of persecution. We, 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 do, we, we fear man more than God. It is the threat of persecution at the end of the day that, that is, is the ultimate uh, problem for denominations. It's what and, and, creates. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can I say one thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, what what came to my mind when you just made that that comment? And you're exactly right. The fear of persecution, but you know what? What do we call persecution? We call persecution not being liked. <laughs> we, our, our idea of persecution is so absolutely. shallow. Absolutely, our, Absol- our concept you're exactly of persecution right. is so shallow. Is that you're well? Exactly I just right. I just don't want to be taught. I don't want to. I don't want to not be liked. You are exactly. I don't right. want exactly right. I don't want to not have someone not want to follow me on social media. Yes, you're exactly right. You're I, don't, exactly I, don't, right. I don't want to have someone not vote for me for president of my denomination. Yep. That's persecution. Yep. That's, that, persecution. that's how we, our, our cowardice is rooted in weak theology. That's where our cowardice yes. comes from. So yes. when you, when you, yes. but when you, when you, when you know, and you've said this already before, when you know that you exist for God and only for him, you don't care about that. Yes. You don't care. It's yes. Galatians one ten. You don't care, but we mm-hmm. but we care. We care so much that we have a we, we dare to call that persecution. Yeah. Just because we're not liked, we're not affirmed. Yeah. By the world, that's Few, persecution. Yeah. F- fewer Twitter followers is persecution. Yeah. It, it it is persecution that causes denominations to run scared. And again, to the point you just made, uh, wow. brilliantly, it, our our meter. For that is 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 so small. It's so weak. So, it's so shallow. Yeah, it is. It is. Most have grown. Most most denominations have grown so large that they do not want to feel the winnowing effects of real persecution that 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 would be experienced if they were to stand on the biblical truths that undergird everything they claimed to stand for at one time. So in, a, in an effort to maintain prominence, in an effort to maintain relevance, they capitulate. Uh, 
first on small things and then on larger things, all in the name of maintaining cultural relevance. And if you were to ask them, they would say they're going to maintain cultural relevance for the for the opportunity to share the gospel when actually the gospel was marred and missed uh, and mistaken long ago. At, at, at first, again, the compromise is, is, a, is, is not even noticeable. Right. You don't even you don't even realize that 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 compromises are happening until you're at the very end of a very deadly cycle for the church. That's all I got. Man, that's wonderful stuff. You know, as you think about that whole uh, idea of uh, uh, it's really just a a, a weak excuse. Well, we're just uh, uh, leveraging just leveraging this approach to create opportunities to share the gospel. Well, I mean, what is an opportunity to share the gospel look like? (laughs) I mean, seriously, what does that even look like? Right. You've got it's, it's a rhetorical question because what what you're saying is that you've got this visage of what an opportunity looks like. It's perfect. The time of day is correct. The location is correct. The person that yes, you want to share yes. the gospel with has the right frame of mind. Then the right attitude. I think they're open to no unbelievers not open to the gospel. So my point is that there is no such thing as an opportunity to share the gospel. The opportunity is every day, every minute of every day. If you're breathing, that's an opportunity. To share the gospel. But, you know, again, like I said, that's just another loophole that we use to uh, as an apologetic for our embracing of the culture. Um, we're getting ready to close here, uh, Omaha, but I want to I want to I want to uh, go to a, a couple more places. And I want to start by quoting from the book titled The Glorious, The Glorious Feast of the Gospel, The Glorious, mm. The Glorious Feast of the Gospel by the 17th century English Puritan Richard Sibbs. And in that book, Sibbs says this, says, quote, there is a veil in all things, either the things be hid from them as it was among the Gentiles, or if the things be revealed, there is a veil upon the heart. Their lusts raise up a cloud, which until God subdues by the Holy Spirit, they be dark, yea, darkness itself. Goshen was light only when all Egypt was in darkness. So there is light only in the church and all other parts in the world are in darkness. As wicked men are darkness, so gracious men by the spirit of God are made lights of the world by him who is the true light, Christ himself, unquote. Sib says, that there is a veil in all things. And it really connects to what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.16, where he says that when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, I want to remind our listeners, Omaha, as we close here, that our intent in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast was not to argue the merits or demerits of specific denominations. I want to make that clear again. We are not here to broach that topic either for or against any particular denomination. What we've endeavored to do in this episode is to discuss the matter of denominations that are attempting to accommodate a culture that innately stands in opposition to the God that certain Protestant evangelical denominations purport to represent in the world. That's what we've been endeavoring to do in this conversation in this episode to address the matter of denominations that are, that are are arguing that we should accommodate a culture that stands in opposition to God. 
And the biblical mandate of any evangelical denomination is to support truly biblical churches in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world so that the veil of unbelief is removed from the minds and hearts of unrepentant sinners such as you and I were at one time, Omaha. Yes, yes. At one time, the veil was over our hearts. Yes. Until God in his grace and mercy removed it. The 19th century English theologian John Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle, lays out that mandate as follows in his classic book titled Holiness in the chapter titled The Cost. By the way, listeners to the Just Thinking podcast know this, Verge, but in the same way that you have such a respectful reverence for Dr. R.C.'s uh, R. Sproul's book on the holiness of God, I, yes. I have to recommend again J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. If you yes, have not yes, yet yes. read it, you have got to get that yeah. book and read it and read it and read it again. I think I probably have 80% of that book memorized. I've read it so often. Yeah. But yeah. Ryle says this in Holiness in the chapter titled The Cost. Please listen closely. Quote, if we desire to do good, let us never be ashamed of walking in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Work hard, if you will, and have the opportunity for the souls of others. Press them to consider their ways. Compel them with holy violence to come in, to lay down their arms, and to yield themselves to God. Offer them salvation, ready, free, full, immediate salvation. Press Christ and all his benefits on their acceptance. But in all your work, Ralph says, tell the whole truth. Be ashamed to use the vulgar arts of a recruiting sergeant. Do not speak only of the uniform, the pay, and the glory. Speak also of the enemies, the battle, the armor, the watching, the marching, and the drill. Do not present only one side of Christianity. Do not keep back, quote, the cross, unquote, of self-denial that must be carried when you speak of the cross of which Christ died for our redemption. Explain fully what Christianity entails. Entreat men to repent and come to Christ, but bid at the same time to count the cost, unquote. J.C. Ryle from his book, Holiness and the chapter titled The Cost. In other words, Omaha, and I will close with this. What Ryle is urging us to do, in other words, he, ex he is exhorting us and warning us and urging us to preach and proclaim a gospel that the culture does not want to hear mm -hmm. about a savior in whom the culture does not want to believe and about a cross that the culture does not want to bear. That's a gospel wow. that is not cultural, but is fundamentally countercultural. Wow. Wow. Thoughts, bro. <clears throat> bro I, I couldn't have said that any better uh, than you just did in summing all of that up. Uh, for our listeners. And man, I'm hopeful uh, that the time that, that we've spent on this particular topic 
you found beneficial um, throughout. Uh, there are times when we've done, you know, we've kind of waited to the end to, 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 to hit you with the punch uh, and, 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 to, and to give you things to think about. But, but as, as Daryl has mentioned, um, we've put things throughout uh, this particular uh, episode for you to consider, to think about, to weigh. My hope would be, my prayer is this, that, 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 that not the words of Virgil and Daryl convict you, uh, but that the word of God uh, does what, what scripture says it will do. Uh, and, and that it'll, it'll rightly divide uh, between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that, that, that it will pierce uh, to the heart of the issue uh, in your own personal heart and life. And that as a result of this episode, uh, you, won't, you won't turn off uh, the, the, the recording of this episode and goes, yeah, I, I, see, I see those Southern Baptists or I see those you know, the folks in the PCA or I see those evangelists but that you'll, you'll, you'll take the mirror of the word of God as presented in this particular episode and look at your own heart and life mm-hmm. uh, and examine it to see if indeed you are in the faith. Uh, that's way more Amen. important uh, than, than any action that you could take uh, in, in, in having some knowledge or in, in any puffed up way uh, for you to examine others. Now, that, that does not mean we aren't encouraging examination of, of your denomination. We would encourage that. Mm-hmm. But we do that on the basis, uh, not of pride, uh, but, of, but of responsibility, uh, of an understanding of what God's word says, uh, of who God says the church is and to whom the church belongs. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, we're, desi- we're desiring to see that th- our experience, our church experience, our denominational experience aligned with the word of God. And so that's, that's all of what I'll share with you. I'll say this. Thank you for joining us, for sticking with us. If you've made it this far, uh, tune in next time for another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. Thinking, thinking, thinking.